And in the conclusion that we've come to is that effective immediately, the title is being held up. What? Wow. The championship is vacant until we can come to some decision as to what to do from here. You say I'm better than you, Ric Flair, if you believe that in your heart. gentlemen oh i I think it's so good save it for some other time we're running out of the clock is winding down listen to be the man you gotta beat the man Uh and i think i've already done that once before but if you got some kind of problem with me saying that I'm the best there is, the best there was, and the best there ever will be, just do something about it. That's all. Quickly, gentlemen. But I'm going to tell you, and they can wrap it, buddy. You're going to have to show me again and hope you don't get hurt along the way, Daddy. Hey, wait a minute. Guys, please. Hey, hey, hey. Not here. He didn't. Nobody heard you say anything. I'm going to have to see it again. Thirteen times. Five times, you got a ways to go, man. It is a cool, crisp night here in the great state of Tennessee. We are having a gigantic virtual party. Hey, listen up. I want to take a little survey. Everybody takes a survey. Are you here tonight to watch the NWO? Or are you here to see... I hope they get the message. Right now, before we conduct a little business, let's check out the Nitro Girls in action. You got no guts. He's talking. You. <laughs> You're a dead man. Lex Luger's hurt. Now, Savage has David Pinter's chair and has David Pinter. I think I'd rather have a chair. Well, I I, I think look, Randy Anderson's telling Luger stop, or telling Savage stop. Pinter gets shoved down. Come on, Savage, go! Remember what the oh! oh! Eric Bischoff gets laid out. Savage hit Bischoff. Let's not eat, not Bischoff. Wait a minute! Out. Wait a minute! Savage hit Bischoff. And here's uh-huh. Hogan. Hogan shoves Savage. Savage shoves Hogan. Nash is out. Just laid out the Macho Man. History being made here. They're in Wembley right in front of your eyes. <laughs> Number one, that match wasn't over yet. I had things under control, believe me. Oh, yeah. Number two, you guys weren't exactly unbelievably coordinated when you got there. So I don't need you in my matches anymore. And number three, and believe me, you talk about a picture of confidence, you talk about a picture of control, I'm looking at a man that looked much better when he had the gold around his waist. All right, that's enough!
Hello, my name is Bob Bamber and welcome to the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast going back in the time machine to January of 1998 for Volume 2 of this month's show. Three volumes for you this month. Now, Volume number 1 takes us to the WWF looking at the Royal Rumble and Volume number 3 takes us to ECW looking at their house party show. We're here in Volume number 2 looking at WCW, including WCW sold out. I'm being joined by Roy McNamara. Roy, good evening. Hello. And a day I thought I'd never come on this show. Another Bob on this show. Bob Colling. Bob, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, and it's Roy to start us off with the news. It is indeed. And the future of Hulk Hogan still remains up in the air, despite rumours that WCW had done a deal and the WWF never being that close, Hogan still holds all the cards and seems intent on playing them. References on TV in the past couple of months to a $1.5 million performance bond and Bischoff mentioning $7.5 million to Brett both seem to have been in relation to a deal that Hogan has at least been offered. But after a bumper buy rate at Starcade, which is unconfirmed but believed to be over half a million, Hogan is perhaps following the Bret Hart playbook and shopping himself around. It comes as the WWF are going forward with a Mike Tyson appearance at WrestleMania. WCW have tried to combat that by getting Oscar de la Hoya, but don't hold your breath on that one. The WCW title was vacated after a series of angles following Starcade offered no conclusive evidence as to who the champion should be. The finish of the final Nitro in December was held off for the debut of Thunder, where it was where it was shown that once again Hogan had a reasonable claim that he should have won the match before Sting eventually did. The revival or the reveal of the decision to strip Sting of the title actually did some damage to an otherwise very strong ratings debut for the show. There was thought of a big tournament to decide a new champion, but they've just gone with Hogan and Sting at Super Bowl next month. No idea what's going to come of Scott Hall's title shot. WCW's sold-out pay-per-view, we can at least say for certain, was better than the NWO version 12 months ago. It was actually unlike most WCW shows of the past year or so. The undercard was a mixed bag in terms of match quality, but the match finishes were generally pretty good. Bret Hart and Ric Flair had an old-school style match, Flair's best match probably since 1995, and probably Bret's best babyface match in the same time frame. The big contention was the end of the show, with Bret and Flair relegated to the semi-main for Randy Savage and Lex Luger, so they could close off with a Nitro-style angle, which seemed to make just about everyone unhappy. There was a scary moment on the show when Kevin Nash barely got Giant up for a jackknife powerbomb and basically dropped Giant on his neck. Giant was okay, and it's not like Nash hasn't successfully done the move before, but Giant is probably 50 pounds heavier than when Nash did it a year ago. The show also featured probably for the first time the heel turn of Dusty Rhodes, who turned on Larry Zbysko after his match with Scott Hall. Along with allowing them to reshuffle the commentary teams, it is also thought that if they do revisit the idea of an NWO TV show, that Dusty would be better than Rick Rude on commentary. One of the big storylines on television has surrounded the future of the NWO, with more storyline progression on that front this month than there was in the entirety of last year. With Hogan's future uncertain, there was thought that Kevin Nash might step in to lead the group, but Hogan has been all over TV this month, and for once it hasn't all been about him. Randy Savage has become an ever-increasing loose cannon, interfering in NWO matches and having his own against Luger Cost after a miscommunication between Hogan and Scott Hall. Don't expect the group to break up anytime soon, but it's more likely that it could split into different parts. Nitro formally moved 
to three hours a week at the end of January, as the show was becoming increasingly great lead in for Monday Night Raw when the show went off the air at 10 p.m. Ratings for the show will continue to be strong even in previous third hours. And their new show, WCW Thunder, started out strongly even if nobody was sure how long the show would last in the days leading up to it. It also follows a bit of a reshuffle elsewhere. WCW Pro and Main Event have been axed, leaving WCW with Thunder, Nitro, Saturday Night, and Worldwide as their main shows. And Dusty Rhodes' heel turn at the pay-per-view has given WCW the excuse to remove, remove him from commentary. Tony Schiavone, now working both Nitro and Thunder, is off Saturday night. Yeah, they uh, they did want an excuse to get rid of Dusty, and uh, finally that was the one they took. Although I think the idea that uh, Dusty being a better commentator than Rick Rude isn't exactly the uh, the greatest <laughs> praise in the world, but there we are. Uh, moving on to Patreon for five bucks a month, he's about to get early access, and for once, someone, we actually got early access to uh, our ECW show this month, and we'll try and do that a bit more frequently this year. He's about to get early access to our shows, or to say thank you for our contribution to your podcasting lives as we go through the highs and lows of wrestling in the mid to late 90s you can do so at patreon.com forward slash wrestling 20rs links in the podcast description and on our website onto the races of the month or actually start in december on december the 29th coming off on starcade nitro to 4.6 to rules 3.6 on january the 5th nitro to 4.3 to rules 3.3 January 12th, Nitro 4.6 to Rules 3.4. On January the 19th, the night after the Royal Rumble and the appearance of Mike Tyson, Nitro still did a Raw, uh, Raw point five, a 4.5, there's a Freudian slip, but Raw did a massive 4.0, which is its highest rating since something like the middle of 1996. Um, and on January the 26th, night after sold out, Nitro 4.7 to Rules 3.5. Mean! We tonight are in Atlanta, Germany, and uh, we are live and on fire. Rick Blair, these are your people. Can you share with us some of your thoughts that's happened after the past eight or ten days in the position of World Championship Wrestling as we enter 1998? Well, just making an observation and Happy New Year, everybody. It's nice to know that without the NWO, the WCW can stand Woo! On its own two feet! Stinger! You're the champ! God bless you! But baby, that belt's red hot! And you got everybody looking at it! Including a gentleman whose name has rubbed me the wrong way for several months! And I want to ask the wrestling world tonight how a guy like Bret Hart I mean I respect his bloodline his family the heritage but how does a guy like Bret Hart call himself the best when the nature boys on the ticket. 
I take exception to that, Gene. You take issue with it. I take issue and I Wait a minute. All that music. We kick off 1998 in the Georgia Dome. A cold open sees the NWA emerge from two limos, and nobody in the group seems to be very happy. When joining the commentary team, Tony says that a court injunction prevents WCW from showing us what happened after Nitro went off the air last week. Gene then talks to JJ Dillon, who confirms that the aftermath will be aired on the inaugural episode of Thunder this Thursday. On the same show, we'll also be treated to pertinent footage of Nick Patrick 3 count from Starcade. Presumably it's too slow to wear on this show. Chris Jericho is in the ring to apologise for flipping out last week and promises us it will never happen again. He presents a new chair and tuxedo to Dave Penza and then takes on DDP for the US title. Page wins quickly with the cutter and Jericho throws another tantrum. Oakland speaks with WCW Executive Vice President Lick Lambros. He reads a statement which says that any WCW or NWO talent that violate company policies will be subject to fines, suspensions or both. C-Ray gets to hit three moves against Bill Goldberg before falling to the increasingly lethal Spear and Jackhammer. A big pop for the former Atlanta Falcon who remains undefeated. John Nord and the Barbarian have a real old club fest. Former Berserker is victorious with a camel clutch. Gino introduces Bischoff as the man who lost Monday Nitro. Eric tells us that there are no problems at all within the NWO. In addition, Dylan didn't make good his promise to fix things last week and he believes WCW don't actually want to see the mythical tape. Bischoff goes on to claim he beat Larry at Starcade and then just walks out of the interview to huge heat. Psychosis and Hoovy battle it out for the Cruiserweight title shot. Not smooth outings for either guy here. Hoovy takes the win with the 450 splash. After telling Gene that he will burn this sucker up, Booker T successfully defends the TV title against Prince Iokea after the Harlem hangover. We get to see the conclusion of the Starcade main event, but only via still images, so Tony and Mike do all they can to make it seem Nick Patrick's three count was at warp speed. Maybe it's for the best if the courts do keep hold of the tapes after all. Up next is a six-man tag. The starters Ray Trader against Conan, Bagwell and Norton. Scott gets the pin on Conan with a lesser-spotted Skynet screwdriver. Rick Martel makes his WCW debut against Brad Armstrong. Both men put in a good showing here despite boring chance. Martel wins with a Quebec Crab. Fun fact, apparently Martel was meant to win the TV title last week but didn't show up with his gear. That's why Booker T is champion. Benoit and McMichael team up to face Saturn and Riggs. As ever, the flock interference allows Raven to sneak in and the DDT the Crippler and Saturn covers for the victory. Gene Oakland introduces Ric Flair, which is just a happy new year before turning to the already very familiar topic of Bret Hart, calling himself the best. Bret and his awful music interrupts and the two men exchange a tense handshake. Flair dares Hart to utter his little saying right to his face. Bret, fought, Bret, Bret does and then follows it with the worst woo in the history of the universe. Flair demands to hear it one more time, but instead Bret responds with Rick's own catchphrase. The Nature Boy gets the last word though. 13 time, 5 time, you've got a ways to go buddy. Our first man in the year is Luger Savage. Patrick is shows referee but Dylan shows up and suspends him and Luger wins a nothing match with an inside cradle. After the bell, Savage goes to hit Luger with a chair but Bischoff stops him. Macho instinctively decks Uncle Eric and the NWO come out to ringside to calm him down which only succeed in doing after he slaps Hogan. They regroup, but before they can go after Luger, Sting hits the ring. He and Lex fend off the heels, but once more we go hurriedly off the air. That saying about 
yesterday and tomorrow and here and gone. The one where you refer to yourself. You know what I'm talking about. Now you're not talking about that little saying about being the best there is. Being the best that there was. And being the best that there ever will be. Is that the one you're talking about? Is that what you were looking for? That. Go ahead. Go ahead. There's a little part I want to add on to the end of it. I want to go, woo, at the end of it. Oh, oh my. Uh-oh. That's, that's pretty good. Now let me ask you a question, can I? I know that you're a big-time columnist, and I know that in Canada, you might be a big deal, Jack, but we're in Atlanta, GA. We're United States. And I probably am the finest example of premium USA manhood there is. Say that one more time with the nature boy standing here. The best that there is, was, and ever will be. And if you got a problem with it, too bad. It's a new year. I'm going to let you one more time say you might think you're better than Harley Race. Jack Briscoe, Dory Funk Jr., Gene Kineski, anybody else you want to list that's in the record book, but you in your heart, and let's take all the comedy out of this, in your heart you couldn't possibly think, no pun intended, that you are a better performer in this sport than I am. Maybe, maybe we could take this back. I want you, you know, we all fess up, brother. I'm not saying I, what I was 10 years ago. 10 years ago, I could go out there with a broom. Now I got to have someone that's got a heartbeat, buddy. But today, I'm telling you that I got to hear you say it. I want to cut all the crap out. Take all the humor out of the situation. If you think you're better than me, I want to hear you say it. Don't talk about everybody else. You say, I'm better than you, Ric Flair, if you believe that in your heart. Wait a minute, gentlemen. Oh, I I think it's so good. Save it for some other time. We're running out of... The clock is winding down. Listen. To be the man... You got to beat the man. Uh And I think I've already done that once before. But if you got some kind of problem with me saying that I'm the best there is, the best there was, and the best there ever will be, just do something about it. That's all. Quickly, gentlemen. But I'm going to tell you, and they can wrap it, buddy. You're going to have to show me again and hope you don't get hurt along the way, Daddy. Wait a minute, guys, please. Hey, 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 not here. 
He didn't, nobody heard you say anything. I'm going to have to see it again. 13 times, five times, you got a ways to go, man. Come on, tell me. So we come out of the TVs, or the first one anyway. Uh, we've got a few more to go before the pay-per-view. Um, there's... There are a couple of things on this show. I think the, the, the NWO stuff will probably package together and discuss at the end because that's kind of fluid. Although I did love the start of the show where, uh, the two limos rock up outside the arena, like both with, like with, uh, groups of NWO guys in it and the announcers go, well, there's two NWO limos there. I wonder if there's any talks of any dissension in the group. I'm thinking, well, that would be a logical plot point. Except for the fact there's so many fucking people in the NWO, you couldn't get me one limo anyway. Um, but but there we are. We'll discuss all of that at the end of the show. Um, but I do want to discuss um, the Bret Hart and Ric Flair stuff. It, it happens throughout the month. Um, there is there's I think there's about three promo interactions between them on uh, on various episodes of both Nitro and Thunder. Um, they all seem to run longer than scheduled um you know which is what it is um and there was also the great line i think during the third night of the month where brett goes i'm not here to run down americans it's like oh okay that's uh that's a new one um but rory i i think you know brett in and, and to be clear pretty clearly as a baby face now with, with all the stuff going on with the nwo they haven't really teased any of this idea that brett might still be in the nwo not what they really could have done um brett now back as a baby face opposite flair alongside gene oakland in most cases um held his own in these promos i think it's safe to say i think he did he was on relatively safe ground because most of the promo work that they did leading up to the match was purely about wrestling that's what this feud as quickly rushed as it has been has been about it's been who's the best wrestler and i think that's something brett is very happy talking about he didn't need to heal on anybody he wasn't sent out there for 20 minutes no he didn't call flair a hyena which i was very pleased about and yes he was talking about what he does and what he still thinks he does better than most and again it was another one of those promos where when flair was daring him to call himself the best there is the best there was the best there ever will be you know i don't think brett in real life really needs a second invitation to do that so, yes, I thought they got the build right for a feud, which, as I say, did come together a little bit quickly. They, I think that's probably why they never really developed the story as they went through the month. But, yeah, above all, it was fine. It made me excited for the match. But, Brett, never, ever, ever do a woo again, please. It's, uh, as the recipient of Rory's uh, Nitro TV notes, I can say was that Rory did not rate that impression. Um, Bob, what do you think of the, these exchanges? Um... Well, I, I agree with Rory, and it's, I'm glad that he mentioned that they didn't really develop a story to it. Um, after watching their interactions, I felt they were uh, relatively basic. There wasn't much depth to them. It was pretty uh, obvious the direction they were going to go in. Um, Brett's obsession with his catchphrase kind of made me laugh that Flair pointed it out, and that Hart proceeded to do it anyway. Uh, so that that just, just proving that he can't help himself, that he has to say it. Uh, I like the line where uh, I, I think it was the first interaction where Flair was like, I'm a 13-time champion, you're five. Like, you got to get on my level. And I, I, I'm pretty sure it was the Atlanta one because the crowd like noticeably makes an, like a reaction to that. Like, you're absolutely right. This is Ric Flair. You know, this is our guy. Like, Brett's still seen as a, as a WWF guy. 
Although, um, although if Brett, Brett was quick enough, he would have just gone, yeah, but I beat you for one of my five. Right, right. Um, right. You know, if, if if Brett was fast enough, and, you know, that's, you know, I don't know whether that crosses mind when I'm not going to cut Flair off. But, yeah. But, yeah. Well, there's, there's an interesting question. It, it was this, uh, Brett and Flair, first month out, first Brett's first full month in the promotion, was this too soon for this match? You know, I don't, that's a, that's a good question. I don't know if they should have kept Flair, uh, interacting with the NWO. I know that at the end of 97, there was supposed to be a cage match with Flair and Henning at Starcade. And there was no real definitive conclusion really to that, I feel like. Uh, but I think this is an example of just rushing something. Maybe they didn't have an exact plan for Flair and, and Brett obviously being used as a special referee, uh, or enforcer. Towards the end of Stark, he didn't really have a clear direction. Uh, I would say, yeah, it was probably rushed. They probably should have had a deeper story to it instead of, I'm just better than you. You know, that stuff doesn't seem to grab my, grab my, uh, attention. And unlike Rory, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not, I wasn't, nothing here on this in the promo has really got me excited for them. I don't think I've ever been excited to see a Bret Hart Ric Flair match, but when we get into sold out, I'll probably rant about that a little bit differently. Yeah, and it was a, uh, you know, they, they, they we've got this weird thing where Flair's trying to play, you know, they're, they're still trying to get Flair to play heel in various situations, despite the fact that no one wants to boo him. Um, right. Yeah, the, the, there's even these weird situations where, like, there's the thing with Flair and Neidhart, I, I don't know if it was on this show or the next one, um, where Flair comes out and interrupts Neidhart the other way around, and Flair's saying all these heelish things, and they get in the ring and start having a fight, and people start cheering Flair. Maybe that's Neidhart just having negative equity. Um, but, but, you know, Flair is... Flair is not the easiest opponent both in the ring or on the mic in the sense that for someone like Brett, who is ostensibly now a babyface, like as I say, there's been no mention of the the NW uh, the the anti-America stuff. There are thoughts about pairing him with Neidhart and David Boy Smith, who rocks up at the end of the month. Can't use the Hart Foundation name. I Roy, as a as a weird side question, I don't know that I'd be pairing Brett with those two uh, in in WCW. I I, I kind of think it, it worked while they were a heel group in the WWF. But if Brett's going to be a face, he's kind of got to be on his own, right? Yeah, and I don't want to see Nightheart near the top of the card, be it by osmosis or not. Bulldog, I could be persuaded on a good day. The problem is at this point, Brett, if he's going to be made a big deal right out of the gate, which he does need to be. There's nobody else really for him to face. You can't really put him in there against the NWO yet. I think that's where they'll be eventually going, working his way up to the final big wig, maybe at Starcade. We'll see when we get there at the end of the year. Unless you just have him taking on mid-carders, which I don't think helps him. Flair is probably the only really high-profile person left, even though I did have my issues with the way the match itself was laid out, but we'll get there a bit later on. Yeah, I, I think also just Brett. Yeah, Brett. At the end of the month is saying, you know, I, I want the WCW title. So that I think they've moved on fairly quickly. They just needed a match. I think ultimately the the bigger point they came to us. We don't have a big match for this for the, for this pay per view. Um, not this match when it'll last. We'll come to that when we get to the show. Um, but you know, also I suppose the other thing was Dave Meltzer said they rushed it. Well. I don't know that we could have done with two more months of build to this. Like, they weren't really going anywhere with these promos. They were largely the same. 
Uh, they were good. They were very watchable. Um, but but uh, you know, I, I think that, you know it might have been better had they both been playing as baby faces anyway. Um, but we'll uh, we'll see what happens when we get to the maybe. Right. Uh, moving away from Nitro, actually, uh, a new show has debuted this month, WCW Thunder. We sent our roving reporter, Rory, away to, uh, to, to, to sit and suffer in silence through the first one, um, in part due to a rather important plot point that appeared on that first show, namely the, 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 the bullshit storyline that, uh, the, the end of, uh, the end of the last Nitro before the new year, which had the Sting and Hogan match where the conclusion never aired, the tape was, um, being held by a lawyer or, or in court, but could be shown on Thunder, just not Nitro. Um, this, this really weird bullshit. It's not the first time that, you know, the, remember the time was it last year where Eric Bischoff like ripped up a tape implying it could be the only possible copy, um, of like a pay-per-view finish. Just all these weird things WCW do with, uh, with videos. Um, but Rory did, did, did kind of suffer through the first thunder. Um, uh, but it did get a bit interesting towards the end and some, some noteworthy news where these stuff happened. Uh, so Rory, give us a, a live read of everything that's happened and we'll discuss it at the end. Okay, here goes nothing. Right then, on the 8th of January, we were indeed treated to the inaugural episode of Thunder, airing on the Superstation at the old 8.05, emanating from the Ocean Centre in Daytona Beach, Florida. We've been there before. A hyperbole pumped Tony welcomes us to the very first edition. He is joined on commentary by Bobby and everyone's favourite roving reporter. No, not me, but Lee Marshall. No Thunder parties yet then. After no fewer than 10 minutes of recaps from Nitro and get used to them, we finally get our first match, and it's Savage against Chris Adams. Macho is in control until Luger whacks him with a chair on the outside, allowing Adams to get a surprise three count. Here's Bischoff, his usual public suck-up to Hollywood. Hogan says that on NWO Thunder, we will see footage of what he calls the very slow three count, and it must be said he's not far wrong. He then tells us that he is, and I quote, just too good and just too tanned, because that's important. He also tells us that he is here for life, as if we needed any reminding. Mike Tanay gets a word with J.J. Dillon. He observed Luger interfering in the match earlier, and as such, he reverses the decision and awards the win to Savage. Lex appears, and he makes the fair point that WCW have been attacked by the NWO for a year with no real comeuppance. He tells every other wrestler in WCW to band together and that they will do whatever they see fit, whether Dylan likes it or not. Rick Martel gets another run-out, this time against Louis Spicoli. Perfectly acceptable wrestling here, and Rick wins with the Quebec Crab. Tenzan goes against All Japan's Ohara, who is of course accompanied by Sonny Ono. The match is noticeably rushed and ends with Tenzan hitting a flying headbutt for the victory. Chris Jericho is once again apologetic for his recent actions, which he assures us will never, ever happen again. He hands another jacket to Dave Penzer and takes on Ric Flair. Jericho misses a dropkick off the top rope and he succumbs to the figure of, the figure of four in the middle of the ring. This causes the, lion to, the Lionheart to flip out yet again. Giant destroys Meng in two minutes with the choke slam. During this match, Tony announces both Giant Nash and Flair Hart for the pay-per-view. Of all the Starcade rematches we could have got, here's Mongo versus Bill Goldberg again. No table spot this time, but otherwise it's exactly the same match, right down to the winner. The Steiners defend the tag titles against Bagwell and Conan. Poor stuff here, including Buff and Rick hideously blowing a neckbreaker spot. Scott takes the win with Arana, and Rick looks just a little bit put out. We then get Bischoff v. Larry from Starcade 
It airs from start to finish. There's more padding in this show than there was in Eric's boot that day. After all of that, Mike talks to the living legend who calls himself the master of human chess. Scott Hall might have been a young, big-looking athlete when he started, but he could never beat Larry. And it's sold out, the outcome will be the same. Zabisco was winning matches all over the world whilst the outsider was sat at home picking his nose. Hall is out now to face Ray Trailer. DBRC distracts Scott, which allows Ray to hit the trailer spike for the surprise win. Hoovy gets his cruiserweight title shot against Dragon. As it, as it goes on, we learn that Scott Steiner has been fined $5,000 for striking an official, which Tony is very unhappy about. Hooven 2 takes the win and the belt with the 450 splash. Mike introduces Bret Hart for an interview. He has nothing but respect for Ric Flair, but he has come to WCW to prove himself all over again. Flair returns to behavior from Monday by interrupting proceedings. Again, he demands that Hart utters that little saying. The hitman complies, thankfully without a woo this time, and Rick calls it one of the stupidest things he's ever heard. <laughs> Nate gives us a potted history of his own career, but Brett's response is pretty good. To be the man, I'll just have to beat the man. Luger versus Norton is up now. Lex kicks out of the devastating shoulder breaker and puts Flash in the rack for the win. The total package also sees off a chair attack from Savage. We see the footage from Starcade of Sting winning the world title. Nick's Patrick's three count. It doesn't get any faster. And then finally, 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 the events from Baltimore last week are shown. And here they are. Stay with me on this one. Sting puts Hogan in the deathlock until Patrick forces a break. Hogan then rolls up Sting with a handful of tights for a free count. An even slower one this time. Patrick is chased to the back and then Sting puts the deathlock on. And Randy Anderson comes to and calls for the bell. You with me? JJ is about to present the belt to Sting, but Bischoff cuts him off. Sting then lays him out with the death drop. The NWO then do their thing, but Brett and DDP lead out the WCW locker room to chase them all off. Clear as mud. <laughs> Mike, this has been a crazy 10 days, very stressful 10 days. Like you say, we had to make a decision. The decision has been made. It's final and it's binding. We attempted to be fair to both parties. We looked at that footage forwards, backwards. We looked at still frames. And the conclusion that we've come to is that effective immediately, mm. the title is being held up. What? Wow. The championship is vacant until we can come to some decision as to what to what? do from here. What a Look at the face of Sting. And Sting... I need for you to give me the championship belt. This is a horrible moment. Look at the face of James J. Dillon and, and the face of Sting. And actually, the NWO is not even happy either. This is a really a victory for the NWO. It is. You've got to think that James J. Dillon would rather throw himself in front oh. of a bus than do this. Did you see what Sting did? You got no guts. He's talking. You. <laughs> You're a dead man. We come back live with JJ in the ring. He has a decision to make. He calls out Hogan, who emerges with all the NWO heavy hitters, and Vincent is there as well. 
and he then asks for Sting with the belt. Having studied all the footage, Dylan is declaring the championship vacant until they can work out what to do next. Sting throws the belt down and then takes the mic. And his first words for over a year, Dylan, you've got no guts. And you, that's Hogan, you're a dead man. We wrap up with our main event, which is DDP against Nash for the US title. Page is about to hit the cutter before Hogan punches him in the stomach, of all things, for the DQ. The giant lumbers down to stare at Nash, and as soon as they start to go at it, the titles roll. Three hours, still out of time. Um, Rory, you, you, you sat through this, you, you know, I, I think you described it in your, your, or the end of your notes to me anyway, as, as, as Lytro. Um, it is just another three hour Nitro, right? With a different uh, set. Apparently a very expensive, very vast set. Apparently it takes like days to set up, which seems a bit pointless. Uh, but what do you think? Well, first off, if that's the set they use, then I don't know who's pocketed the rest of the cash. It's just a big brick wall is all I could spot out there, but uh, never mind. Yeah, I get the impression, and we've been reading the sheets for the last couple of months, that they, WCW, Bischoff, etc., weren't exactly crazy about the idea of having a second show every week, but if Turner says jump, you say, if Turner says jump, you just say, how high, Ed? And that is what's happened here. Yes, it was just a three-hour episode of Nitro. The same sort of build, the same sort of quick matches, the same sort of run-in ending that we didn't get to see the final part of. And yes, it's the sort of thing, I haven't seen all the other Thunders this month, but I've read the results. It looks like it's there to harness storylines, but I don't think it's ever going to really develop them. That's what Nitro is going to be there for. So it does seem, just at the moment at least, a bit on the pointless side. Well, I think me and you watched the, the, the last kind of half hour, 45 minutes, probably the important part of the show. Um, a, a, any thoughts on Thunder itself? Uh, and then I think specifically honing in on the uh, on the decision to strip Sting of his start. What do you think? Well, <clears throat> I'll be honest with you. I, I totally forgot. I, don't think, I think prior to this, I don't think I've ever seen the last half hour of Thunder uh, in its entirety like that. So when I saw Nick Patrick making the count, I was hoping that it would be fast. Just for once, just do it correctly. And he didn't. And then I was – part of me went back to my nine-year-old self, and I just suddenly did not care about Sting. You know, spending a year and a half making him seem like an absolute unstoppable person or, you know, rallying behind him. And then in a matter of 48 hours or 24 hours, uh, you have him lose cleanly once on pay-per-view, and then you show it again on Thursday that he got pinned with a handful of tights. I have a hard time believing Sting couldn't get out of a, of a roll-up from Hulk Hogan, but that's just me uh, overthinking it. Thunder definitely has the feeling of uh, the B-level show. Uh, I think they've, like, through the, the rest of the month, there's some big matches on their, you know, they last three minutes, the main events usually, and they're not clean. So not try, um, basically. Right, exactly. Um, but, you know, the stripping Sting of the championship... I think a lot of damage was done when he lost at Starcade. Uh, I think noticeably the crowd reaction for him diminished pretty rapidly. I think you, I think you have to do it, and then ideally uh, have him properly beat Hogan, I, you know, realistically, cleanly, and have it be a definitive win. Um, so I mean, I, I understand it, but the whole 
too fast counts or trying to be fast counts were just is just a little bit ridiculous to me. And I and I, I saw a report that uh, the second fast count actually comes in at roughly three point two six seconds. <laughs> so I guess you know point two seconds. You know I mean that's that's kind of that's just it's insane. It's a it's a longer a longer fast count by Nick Patrick. So I mean I get it. I, I get why they why they felt like they had a strips thing or. You know, Hogan wanted maybe get another big payday out of it, so I get it. Um, Roy, what what the the, the Sting thing? Like, you know, uh, there's a lot of focus on the finish, but I, I, having seen you know the shows this month, and certainly you know these three shows between Starcade and where we're up to at the moment, it feels like they're not all in with Sting. Uh, and I know that was pro- you probably could have said that straight after the pay per view anywhere as it happened. Um, but uh, you know, you get to this bit where they're stripping the title, and there's no massive shock, and I'm not sat there thinking, "Well, this is a bizarre left turn in terms of direction." This just looks like a company that kind of was more excited about the idea of Sting chasing for the title than the other were about him holding it. Uh, they say the chase is better than the catch, don't they? But the catch has still got to mean something, and. If you drop it straight away, as we know, Bob, as cricket fans, it, it ain't no catch. So, what are they doing with Sting now? It's, he didn't have a chance to have a proper celebration. The one at Starcade, let's face it, was completely tainted. He has to defend the title again at Hogan the next day. We don't see how it finishes. We have to wait a week. It's a complete and utter screw-up, which he takes another three-count loss to Hogan and needs help from another referee and J.J. Dillon just to have the belt taken back off Hulk because, you know, they didn't actually reverse the decision again and give the belt back to Sting. And then they completely waste him taking the microphone. I mean, when he was given it there at the end of the speech, Dylan, at the end of Thunder, there was a palpable buzz in the crowd. They're like, oh my God, Sting's going to speak for the first time in 18 months. What are we going to get? And he tells JJ Dylan he's got no guts and Hogan that he's a dead man. What a complete waste. Again, I didn't want Sting to go in there and say, give an old 10-minute promo. But come on, if you're going to have a moment like that where he's finally speaking as the Crow character, God's sake, make it mean something. And just, oh, just, are they deliberately sabotaging themselves here? It's there. They, it's in their hands. Like I said last month, and they just thinking, oh, yes, that's a nice bauble and trinket, but no, I don't need that now. I'll just pop that over there and forget about it. They've got to be so, so careful. And I don't think they are being. Uh, Rory, I, I can have this thought in the month. Is there a, is there a case that after Starcade, the Sting character should have started, I, I don't know how to, well, not how to phrase it, I don't know where to stop it, but to, to me, like, the Crow character may have served its purpose. And I don't know that you necessarily need to wind back the clock two years and make him surface thing, cut the hair, make him, you know, blonde and all happy go lucky again. But I kind of feel like to capitalize properly on Sting, like now he's, you know, and it would have helped if he'd have beaten Hogan clean the sheet as a pay-per-view. I feel like it would have helped had we have now just gotten to the point where Sting was starting to edge back towards where he was. You know, keep the long hair, keep the face paint if you want. But yes, I do feel like we should have heard from him and I feel like we should have had clarity and almost like a, like an explanation really. Like, you know, whether you want to humanize him to that degree, I don't know. But to me, the, the way they've handled him from stripping him of the title and not really giving him 
time to speak has probably almost been as bad as the blown finish. And if you do bring him back a little towards surface thing, or at least being able to cut promos, it makes the whole Crow character mean something. It's Sting going back into himself, trying to find something even he perhaps didn't know existed after being betrayed by WCW back in the summer and fall of 1996. This was my problem with the Crow gimmick. I remember I was on with you and Dell when we were talking about Clash of the Champions in August last year. When I said, yeah, the Crow character is all very nice and it's visually very impressive and they put a lot of stock into it and the crowd enjoy it when he comes down from the rafters. But what does it all really mean? And if we did start having Sting cutting promos and talking properly, then we could really get some closure on. As you say, he doesn't need to ditch that character completely. Uh, if he doesn't have a, harn- a harness, pun intended, for what this character is now supposed to be going forward, he doesn't have that. He doesn't have the belt. I'm not convinced he's going to win the belt back next month. And what really does he have? And we really now shouldn't be at the point where with the Sting character we're asking questions, but we still are, and it's a major worry for me. But what do you think of the the, the, the idea of a Sting, you know, kind of changing character in the few weeks following Starcade? Would, would that have been a, a beneficial thing? I think so. I, I think if you make his personality kind of dependent on the championship – like as you guys were was talking there, I was just kind of picturing what if he had came out the next night, not necessarily as the surfer's thing, but as a more energetic and he's doing the the wooing and all these things, but he still has a face paint, but he's not so depressing feeling. He's actually uplifted and vindicated and stuff like that. Um, and you can play a part in that his overall happiness is on the championship, you know, and that he's that he's WCW's guy. And if and when he were to lose it, that he can transform back into the crow because there goes his happiness. So there's a layer for Sting, not just a guy that was the top guy before Hogan and all those guys came in. So I I think I mean he was this he was the crow guy for a year and a half. He didn't speak, and then he gets the championship and hasn't changed. Um, I think there is positives for him to transform into a just. Or recreate himself shortly afterwards, for sure. I think that the whole not speaking sting and depressing one is kind of on its last legs, I'd say, by this point, for me. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, it's not to say that you have to snap it back in two weeks. It's not to say you couldn't evolve it back in the next six months. I just think there's a, you know, the old expression, strike while the iron is hot. This, this kind of, this kind of feels like it. And I feel like they have, they've missed out as much as they missed out the show when he should have just emphatically left with the title. Um, you know, I, I don't know what a good sting title run would have looked like. I guess is the other point though. Like as much as I probably wouldn't have taken it off him like 10 days later, I don't know what a, a good sting title run would look like for the next few months. Like how that would have, fit into things in terms of you know there was a thought it was going to be Sting and Scott Hall in February and it kind of works out that there wasn't really much in that which you know says a lot about I think Dave Meltzer said Sting is kind of a guy like Roddy Piper who will probably draw a while against Hogan but may not necessarily draw one on his own which is a bit of a problem if you want to run with it on top I mean I suppose you could put him in against Bret Hart but that's a that'd be a weird the early match to do given the popularity of both guys um but yeah, I, I don't know that, that taking the title of him was necessarily a great move, as in like there's, 
you know, I don't know there's going to be that much interest to see if he can get back to the top again. I mean, don't get it wrong, him and Hogan, again, should do very, very well. But then again, I expect it would have done very, very well had it been Sting defending his title in February as well. Um, we will see. It, it, it was a, it was a weird decision. A lot of people turned out afterwards. There wasn't long left in the show at this point, but a lot of people tuned out after they said Sting was dropping the title. Um, and yes, I feel like this month they certainly have missed an opportunity regarding Sting. Not that he's a great promo, and not that you need to dye his hair bleach blonde at this point, or even at all. Um, but I feel like there's an evolution that they've missed out on here. Um, uh, and it's you do it in a couple of months it might be too late um, it might already be too late the weather booked it but um, but there we are we're in Jacksonville Florida on the 12th of January Gene is out back and he sees most of the NWO arrive he called us Nash about him striking Savage last week Kev says that all he did was put out the fire it's noted the macho is not there and Nash then says Savage doesn't want any of me our first match lasts 90 seconds of Goldberg, as Goldberg mows through Jerry Flynn. Black Cat is then up against Marty Jannetty. Marty takes it with the showstopper. Another limo arrives, and this time it's Savage here with the rest of the NWO. He demands to hear what Nash said about him, but Gene doesn't comply. Benoit and Malenko have an outstanding seven-minute match, which ends after the crippler locks in the crossface. As soon as the bell rings, the, the flock arrives to attack Benoit and leave him laying. They then dish out the same treatment to Dean. Gene's in the aisle with Dylan. He finds Randy Savage $5,000 for hitting Bischoff with a chair last week. Macho storms out, but Eric is the cooler head here and offers to pay the fine. Savage says it's not the money, but the principle. And he still wants to know what Savage says earlier, uh, what Nash said earlier, but he gets no answer. Oakland talks to DDP now. Page is jacked in Jacksonville. The only thing that's for life is his hatred of the NWO, and they are going to feel the bang. Booker defends his TV title against former champ Saturn. Perry gets a three count with his feet on the ropes, but Rick Martel comes out to tell the referee, so the match is restarted. Booker goes on to win with the Harlem Hangover and offers Martel a shot in the future. God, if that if that's a plan, why not? If you're if you're Rick Martel or anyone, just run out during any main event on Nitro that involves the WCW champion, you'll be laughing. Gene Oakland introduces Nick Lambros. Nash has to pose a 1.5 million dollar performance bond for the match versus Giant sold out, or he'll be suspended for a year. Bischoff comes to the ring with attorney to the stars Henry Holmes. He tells Lambros that they accept his demand, but there is a catch. The Giant has to match the 1.5 million, and if he touches Nash for the pay-per-view, then WCW must forfeit the cash. Nash then goes Giant, but the big man doesn't budge. Our number two, Luger beats Hugh Morris with the rack. A tear for Elizabeth then distract Lex, allowing Savage to attack him. Liz then gets in the slap on the total package for DDP chases them away. Jericho gets the best he can out of Mongo before chasing defeat after the tombstone. He gets the mic and says his recent bad actions will never happen again, but then he viciously attacks Rey Mysterio. Mysterio is due to take on Hoovy for the Cruiserweight title. The match does take place, but Hoovy 2 wins with a 450 very quickly. Bischoff and Hogan are here as ever. Everybody here saw him beat Sting for the 1-2-3 and how can Sting even look at himself in the mirror every morning when he knows Hogan is the man. Hollywood is our champion and tomorrow a federal court injunction will be taken out to prove it. After that they will take WCW for every penny they've got. Gene has a word with the debuting Jim Neidhart. The anvil respects Ric Flair but thinks he's no Bret Hart. 
Rick emerges and they take it to the ring. Flair hits both Jim and the ref with brass knocks, then locks in the Brett patented figure four around the ring post. The hitman sprinks the ringside and gets in some shots while Flair backs off. The main event is the Outsiders versus the Steiners for the tag titles. It's a fun power affair. The ref gets bumped and Nash covers Rick. Sarish goes for the elbow, but despite hitting Steiner, it looks like Kev was the intended target. The Outsiders win with a dog pile pin, but the NWO arguments are loud as the show comes to a close. We're straight into action on the 19th in New Orleans with Eddie going against the man of the moment, Rick Martel. Again, it's the veteran from Quebec scoring the clean win via submission, and it must be said, the fans do seem to be with him. Lengthy footage from Thunder last Thursday as we see Savage hitting Luger as opposed to tag team partner Nash, and once again not seeming like an accident. Hogan also strikes Savage by mistake. Hogan and Bischoff are out for their weekly address. Eric presents Hollywood with a baseball bat so he can control the world as he sees fit. Hogan says the NWO is still united, but there is a pecking order. No prizes for guessing who's at the top. Hogan wants to beat up the giant tonight in our main event because he's a fighting champion and our hero. We all fall in line as his disciples. Benoit and Jeanette have a good five-minute contest which ends with a uh, crippler crossface and the flock make their usual post-match attack. Marty then recovers and he and the crippler clear the rings of the heels in impressive fashion. Ernest Miller now introduces the cat faces Jerry Flynn. You need an abacus to keep count of all the kicks in this one and the cat wins with, uh, well, a kick. Hall gives Larry a chance to bow out gracefully from their match that sold out as he has many more important things to do. But Larry won't back down at the PPV. He will beat that stupid jerk. The Steiners take on Buff and Conan. Scott doesn't tag out once but gets the three on Conan with the screwdriver. Neither DBRC or Rick seem pleased with Scott's conduct. Gene tries to take on Giant but Hogan and, uh, Hulk and Nash stroll to the ring straight away. Kev talks to Giant who still doesn't bite. Cyrus then follows to try and get at Nash and he pushes Hogan into Kevin who stumbles into Giant. The big man sees that as provo- provocation and is about to strike Nash but Hogan hits him with the bat. Sting runs down and gives Hogan the death drop and reclaims his bat and G's up Giant as the segment ends. Booker defends the TV title against Mortis. Some huge moves on uh, on display in this one until the Harlem Hangover finishes it. Wrath beats Booker afterwards and administers the death penalty. The omnipotent Martel sees him off, but he wants a TV title shot that's sold out. In Oakland's own words, it's time for our weekly visit from Ric Flair. He does the usual until Brett turns up. He thinks Flair is a credit to the sport and didn't come here to disrespect Americans. But his goal is to run right over the top of Nature Boy on Saturday. Rick gives Brett a chance to call Flair the greatest. The hitman doesn't take it. Jericho beats Hooven 2 with a lion tamer and holds onto it for a long time afterwards. He says it will never happen again, but then he beats Hoovy some more. Ray then sprints down to round of the Lionheart out of the ring. Hall and Luger have their bog-standard match until Savage hops in for the DQ and post-match beating. Larry tries to make the save, but Hall gets the better of him. Lex comes to and chases off the bad guys with a chair. Giant against a neck-braced Hogan is our main event. Bischoff tries to call it off, but to no avail. Hogan goes for the cover after a slam and a leg drop. Just Savage climbs to the top before he can elbow what somebody. In the confusion, Giant is able to get up and hit the chokeslam for the pinfall victory. The NWO beatdown is stopped by Sting coming down from the rafters and he, Giant and Luger, clean house. Some big money here when it comes to the match this coming Saturday night. It's sold out. But before we talk about Kevin Nash and $1.5 million, what about the out-and-out insult thrown in your face by Hollywood Hulk Hogan earlier here tonight? <laughs> you know, that's pretty funny, Gene, when you think about it. I'm sitting in the back lacing up my boots and 
Hollywood's out here running his mouth about how he's going to beat everybody in town. He thinks he's going to beat the giant tonight. Newsflash! Hollywood, I got something for you, baby. It's called the Joke Slam! All right. That will be coming up later tonight here on Nitro. Stay tuned for that. I can't believe some of the things that uh -oh. the Gene, NWO. Gene, stay, Gene, Gene look, look at the entranceway. What is it? Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Hold, hold it. Just a second. Kevin Nash, Hollywood Hulk Hogan, two men that you're going to be facing this week. All of a sudden, they're going to try to taunt you. Don't touch them. It'll cost you a cool mill and a half. Don't touch them. Don't come in here and strike to cause trouble, gentlemen. Uh-oh. Here we go again. Here we go again. How much of that could you take? Uh, oh, speaking of how much of it, what's going on here? What in the world's going to happen here? We've got a tawny, we've got a threat with a ball bat, we got a nut in the ring. Being savage. And Hogan it, remains the peacemaker. Yeah, the peacemaker. He's threatening Savage. Savage apparently wants to get at Kevin Nash. Hogan laying down the law to Savage. And Savage is listening to him. He sure is. I tell you, Hollywood Hogan single-handedly. Oh, not for long. Forget about it. Uh oh He pushes Hogan into Nash. Oh, wasn't it Nash that that touched the giant that time? It looks that way to me. I think it was Kevin Nash that began this. Spilling coffee all over the giant. Watch out! Watch out! Oh, the Tommy the face! Oh. The baseball bat delivered to the back and a second time by Hogan. Down goes the giant! Here comes Sting! Oh yeah, here we go! Look behind you! Too late! Good night! Bingo! Drop him! Drop him! Drop him with the Scorpion Death Drop! The Great Equalizer is... Let's move on to the paper here. Roy kicks off with the results of WCW Sold Out. Here we go. Sold Out. In our opening match, with eight-man tag team match, Juventud Guerrero, Super Calo, Lismark Jr. and Chavo Guerrero Jr. defeated the team of La Parker, Psychosis, Silver King and El Dandy. Chris Benoit defeated Raven in a match held under Raven's own rules. Uh, Chris Jericho defeated Rey Mysterio Jr. to win the WCW Cruiserweight Championship. Booker T successfully defended his World TV Championship against Rick Martel. Larry Zbysko defeated Scott Hall by disqualification. There's a lot more to that one, as we'll get to. In a six-man tag team match, Ray Trailer and the Steiners defeated a team of Conan, Scott Norton and Buff Bagwell. Kevin Nash defeated the Giants. Bret Hart beat Ric Flair. And in our main event, Lex Luger went over Randy Savage. Paul, what do you think of this show? You know, I don't... Um, I don't... I'm trying to think of how to properly put this into words. Uh, just as soon as I... I had, As soon as I put on the show, uh, I was surprised to see how small the arena was uh, in comparison to how, how else the uh, other arenas that they ran. Uh, I mean, I thought it was—I thought it was pretty, pretty decent way to start off the sh uh, the year, uh, pay-per-view wise. I mean, it was definitely a B-level show. Um, numerous names not competing on it. Um, the undercard did very well, I thought. Um, 
and then the main event to me was uh, pretty much a snoozer. I didn't really care for it. Um, it was not. Uh, I mean, that's usually that's usually how it goes for WCW. Usually for me, the undercard is really solid and uh, keeps my interest. And then as soon as we get to about the two hour mark of the show, I uh, I, I kind of lose interest. But I thought, relatively speaking, I thought um, they did they did pretty well with setting various things up and. Some of the some of the wrestling maintained my interest for the most part. Yeah, on the uh, on the arena front, uh, you know, it doesn't help this month. They played they played the uh, the Georgia Dome in Atlanta, not the not the full thing. There's about twenty five thousand people there. Um, and then I think it was the New Orleans Superdome. They may have gone to later in the month again, a similar kind of setup. But you know, and they're, they're set up for like twenty five, thirty thousand people, which don't get wrong, is a lot of fucking people. Um, you know, but it, it's. Uh, when you're playing like one third of the Georgia Dome, it goes up a lot more than it goes out. And so when you're playing these just five, six thousand seater, like, you know, full, full hit venues, they do feel a lot smaller. The roof feels a lot shallower, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think generally just the perception is that Nitro tickets are just easier to shift amongst other things you know they don't have to they don't book these things so far in advance that they're, they're willing to, to try more things as well which helps and you know if they think well we can get a good gate in atlanta we'll try uh, Roy, what do you think of this show well it was better than last year <laughs> just by dint of existing it was better than last year but anyway this was quite an odd show though it felt like a real throwback it was as if i was watching a wcw pay-per-view from Late 93, early 94, I can imagine it's taking place between Starcade 93 and Super Brawl 4. As we say, the arena was quite small. It was held in not exactly a wrestling hotbed in Trotwood, Ohio. Uh, everything was pretty much in-ring based. Nothing looked all that spectacular in the arena. The heel and face lines were very clearly demarcated. We had a big old school heel turn in the middle. And just compare and contrast, the final thing we saw in this show was two big baby faces standing tall, raising each other's hands. The competition ended their big pay-per-view with a casket being set on fire. Where the business is going, and where WCW have made great strides in taking the business there over the last 18 months, it always seems like they're reverting back to their comfort zone, which I think is rather curious and is one to watch. But above all, I thought the show was... uh, Pretty good and always watchable. Yeah, um, not nothing stand out. I think Brett and Flair was good, but dare I say it, probably about Flair's ceiling in 1998. Um, and that was the high point of the show. Everything else was fine. Nothing drastically memorable. I mean, the, the, well, the, the Nash Giant match, I suppose, was for a few different reasons. Um, but on the whole... Uh, an interesting show, but one, you know, I think Dave Meltzer said that this is, you know, we're kind of getting to the point now where, you know, this is an okay show, but it's like, this is the third three hour show of the week. Well, not quite, but you know, when you've got a show on Monday and Thursday that's very, very similar, generally hotter crowds, generally bigger crowds, generally more going on, because this was just match, 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 with the exception of one in-ring segment. Um, these long, pay-per-view shows don't stand out unless you've got big matches to deliver and this one didn't really have that with uh, with one exception but anyway we'll uh, 
we'll see what happens as we go. We open up with a choppy video package preview Nash and the Giant. Giant just wants Nash to show up. First up is Hunter Guerrero, Supercaro, Lismark Jr. and Chavo Guerrero Jr. versus La Parker, Silver King, Psychosis and El Dandy. Psychosis goes for a powerbomb, Kala reverses into an arm drag. Kala runs up Psychosis on the turnbuckle and backflips off. Silver King hits a big sidekick on Lismark and there's a running kick in the corner. Lismark moves and he nails the camera quite hard. La Parker and Hoovy do stereo baseball slides on their respective opponents. There's a big reset as they move to the next spot. La Parker catches Hoovy and Tood in a crossbody position, struts, and then just puts him down. Hoover 2 comes off the top of the lovely headers. He shapes to follow on the outside, but Psychosis levels him with a lariat and Lismark, then hammers Psychosis with an even better one. No tags in this match, so expected to be very fluid. An airplane release from Silver King. Hoover 2 gets up, uh, gets up getting pinned after screwing something up like every pin in this match it's just broken up who and two in a sense of 450 splash with no room whatsoever knees end up smashing into silver king who mercifully seems to be okay so Kozis is a brain bust then a leg drop from the top but it's broken up silver king goes for a crossover flying crossbody uh, yeah, that's what we're not saying. It meets air. Kalo hits a dive. Daddy a dive. Hoovy a dive. La Parker aborts a dive. And it's an assay moonsault. Lismark hits one. And all six men are conveniently on the outside of the ring. Which leaves us with Hart, Chavo and Hooven Tude in the middle of the ring. Chavo hits a charge in the corner. Hoovy misses one. Chavo plants with a DDT. And that will do that. La Parker grabs a chair and just wipes out the entirety of the winning team and then his own team as well. My notes finish with the line that I'm kind of hoping this is DDP, but uh, but alas, not. Uh, Rory, Dave Meltzer liked this match, but I didn't. Uh, nor really did I. And there were no Japanese people in this match either, so what is Meltzer going on about giving this one four stars? Yes, I would rather watch this than DOA versus Lost Bariquas part two million, but only just. And the crowds aren't really enjoying it now either. They sat on their hands throughout this one, just waiting for the big dives to come at eight or nine minutes. And there they weren't disappointed. And it just ends in such a insipid manner. People going up to the top rope, doing all sorts of death-defying things that have, well, supposedly death-defying. They do defy death because they're back up on their feet half a second later. And there's the simple rolling DDT gets the win. I could barely even remember any of the stuff they did now because it's all just blending into one. Yet I can remember La Parker actually showing a bit of personality, blasting everybody with a chair and doing a little strut at the end. And when that's the one thing you recall from what's supposedly a get-the-crowd-going-high-flying match, then I think you've got some major issues. And Yes, I'm getting incredibly tired of this stuff now, but I fear that uh, I just need to sit down and get used to it because this match is going to be... This, this exact match with almost the exact same people is going to be so easy for them to just throw it on at the start of pay-per-views to fill 10, 15 minutes rather than, you know, actually coming up with something. And I'm just so tired of the whole thing, which is a shame. All of these guys are good at what they do, but I just don't want to see it anymore. It, again, it goes back to what I said earlier. It doesn't mean anything. Bob. Oh, boy. Uh... <laughs> Rory, I I, uh, I tend to agree with most of what you said. I I enjoy these kind of matches, uh, just doing nonsense, uh, no storytelling, just diving onto people. I tend to enjoy that. Um, but you're right. I mean, there's no meaning behind it. They're just hitting spots to hit them. Uh, the crowd, you're absolutely right. They're just waiting for some guy to go flying into the air and then jump on their feet and act like nothing's happened. I mean, that's what they that's what these guys do. I did notice, like, Liz, Lismark Jr. really stood out to me, not because of talent, but because he's easily the tallest cruiserweight I've ever seen uh, compete. 
but I mean, I enjoyed it. La Parca after the match with his chair hitting people. I've always enjoyed La Parca. I thought, you know, I, th- I think he should do m- more in WCW. I think if he were to be a top level heel for a cruiserweight division, I think that could be fun. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, maybe it's, I don't know. I, we clearly have two different tastes, but I would take this as a way to get me excited for a pay-per-view. Uh, you know, get me excited and then completely forget about it and continue on with the show. This match was like a sandwich without bread. Like in, theory, <laughs> in theory, it's a nice idea, but like, there's, you know, like you, you, you don't have, you don't, you wouldn't just want a cake that was all the the thin layer of stuff in the middle, right? Like, you know, this match was just. We'll do a big move, and then those two roll out of the ring. The next two jump in the ring. They'll do some shit, and then roll out of the ring. And the next two jump in. There's just no, there's no, you know, pretense of selling. There's no pretense of any kind of story trying to be told. It's just move, 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 move. Very impressive. I I, I won't doubt the skills of the guys involved, or the fact to a point the crowd got into it largely. Um, but yeah, it was just like you know, if if it wasn't for the highly contrived bit, as it always has to be, where six guys end up on the outside on the floor, this match would never have ended. Um, they would have just carried on tagging in. Guys do shit. Someone breaks up the pin. New guy tags in. Would have been like that for about an hour and a half before they wore each other out. Um, it just wasn't interesting. Just quite sterile. Like I can, you know, like I go to a circus and want to see guys fly about. Um, maybe it works in Mexico. I, I assume it does, but I'm surprised they, you know, I, I can't recall a WCW match with the odd exception. There's a couple that vaguely stand out as a six man that was equally as ridiculous, but I can't recall many WCW cruiserweight matches like this where it was just so relentless, where there wasn't really any pretense of setting. There is this thought of, well, you have the guys in a singles match. You know, they don't slow down, therefore it looks really bad. Whereas this way, at least, if they, they do some big shit, they can roll them out of the ring. But the problem with that singles match issue is not ousted here. Adding more guys in, okay, at least starts the problem where the guys aren't selling. But there is a pacing issue to this kind of thing, too. Um, and it just didn't work for me. May it work for other people? You know, it, it, let's say the, the crowd got into it. You are going to get into guys flying about to a point. Um, I just feel like there's a, there's a way of adapting this style and taking the best bits from Mexican wrestling and adapting it into a way that will fit into an American audience. This ain't that. Um, I wasn't a big fan, even if I can admire what's going on. Anyway, we move on next. The flock come out uh, for Raven against uh, Chris Benoit. They're carrying signs. Kidman's one says flock equals ratings. As an announcement, Ray, uh, announcement says that Raven has to wrestle and the flock is banned from ringside. Raven says he doesn't need anyone. He doesn't need his pain. We start out with Raven throwing Benoit into the guardrail on the ring steps. A chair ends up in the ring. Raven does a snapman onto it and then unfolds it. He does a running ball onto it, but he missed by a mile. I think he did anyway. Raven comes off the ropes. Benoit does a drop toe hold and Raven doesn't miss the chair this time. Benoit hits a snap suplex. Dusty overanalyzes the exact spot where Raven hit the chair. Raven now on the run. Badly, it should be said. Benoit hits a suplex on the ramp. And for once in WCW, it's actually a ramp. Back in the ring, Benoit lays the chair on Raven's head, stamps on the chair then hits a diving headbutt onto it. And they're both sparked out. Double count out here. Looked like it anyway, but Benoit rolls over and covers Raven, who barely kicks out. Raven cows a suplex with a nice DDT. Raven picks up Benoit. Benoit drops him into a cross face. Raven actually has a smile on his face, but he fades and then passes out. And Benoit wins for a big pop. Afterwards, 
Uh, out comes Kippen, he goes to the top, and out comes Dean Malenko to cut him off. Quickly, it becomes about six on two as the flop beat up Benoit and Malenko. Van Hammer cradles Raven and carries him to the, ben- to the back as Malenko and Benoit clean house. Bob? I, I enjoyed this. I was actually looking forward to seeing uh, Benoit and Raven. I, last, last month, they, I guess, kind of did a bait and switch when uh, Raven decided not to wrestle. So I, uh, I enjoyed that they, I was looking forward to the, uh, went to sold out. I thought it was, a, it was a pretty good match. Uh, the usual Raven, uh, hardcore stuff with the chair, things like that. I've always, I've always enjoyed Benoit and, uh, they seem to work pretty well here. Um, I'm 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 kind of mixed on the idea of Benoit and Malenko working together as a tag team. Um, I know a lot of people probably would like that, but I've never really been a fan of two singles wrestlers joining forces kind of randomly. Uh, to say, get used to it. Where WCW can see yeah, I know that's the plan yeah, going I, forward, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, they're they're two really good workers, um, and. There's enough championships in WCW they could probably challenge after, but um, I mean I, it, was, it was okay. I mean nothing great. Um, I know that I remember the arm drag spot with Raven going on the chair. I kind of cringed a little bit. I was like, that's not good for your spine, but that's Raven. I really, I really enjoyed when he was uh, in the crossface and he was smiling. That gives some really good depth to Raven. You know, the, enjoying the punishment, like he enjoyed it, and even though he lost. I mean, does does he really lose? I mean, he was enjoying what he was suffering, I guess. You know, I, I like that depth of it. Uh, and I wouldn't mind seeing these guys wrestle uh, more often. Rory? Yeah, I enjoyed this too. I think Benoit adapted like the absolute pro that he is in any style of wrestling to Ravens. Uh, organized or not so organized chaos, if we can call it that. They went for 10 minutes, which was, which was about the right time. Uh, some very sick spots indeed where Benoit goes up for a flying headbutt and eats nothing but chair. That looked, well, that looked hideous. And, uh, yeah, great finish. Really great finish. Decisive enough so Benoit can move on from the singles element of this feud. As you say, he's probably teamed up with Malenko for a couple of tag matches against them. But also, it doesn't hurt Raven because it did hurt Raven. And he loved the fact it hurt him. And that's a really interesting character point they can use going forward. Because I think we need that with Raven now. It doesn't seem like it. He's been there for six months, and yet he's still just the brooding guy who sits with his. He's weird wrestled friends. about three matches. Yes, he has, and one of one of the, one of those was uh, against my boy Stevie. <laughs> Come back soon. Uh, anyway, oh, that's not going to happen. But, um, so yes, let's see where they go with Raven. Now they they've really got something with him because he, he plays this character brilliantly. He really does. He almost plays it too well. That uh, I sometimes I wonder whether the creative team are really 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 get what he can be about yes good little match right person won and uh, let's see where they go next yeah if there's one thing you can say about the volume of nefarious finishes that we see in well pro wrestling as a whole it means that generally when there is a clean victory it generally means something um and as ever not for the first time probably not for the last time either a guy has lost cleanly and yet probably earned a lot more than versus if you've been protected and not been defeated at all. Um, this was good. Like one of the big benefits of the Ravens knee not being ready is that we've had to hold off on this Raven Benoit match. I'm surprised it's actually so early in the card. Um, the crowd really seemed to want them to, 
to square off. They did the right thing by sending the flock away. I mean, okay, they could have come back and interfered, but they, they didn't until right after the match, which I guess makes sense. Um, ben Wall looks good in victory. Raven looks good in defeat. Uh, match was good. You know, it's a very, one of the better Raven style matches, but I expect that opposite, you know, Chris Benoit. I imagine that if I had a series of wrestling matches, my match with Chris Benoit would probably be the best. It's still a bit shit. Um, but, but that's, you know, that's kind of the thing. You put anyone in the room with Chris Benoit, they generally will look pretty good. Um, and this match had a lot of things going for it. It's, uh, yeah, Raven's best outing in WCW. And as I said before, I'd prefer to do more with Benoit than this. Um, but at least he's having good matches. I mean, he always will, but that's, that's his waterline at least is, is, uh, is Benoit being uh, on the level. Anyway, move on next to Chris Jericho versus Rey Mysterio for the WCW Cruiserweight title. Mysterio actually manages to drop Jericho with an open hand slap. He comes off the apron with a head scissors and follows that with a fake through the ropes and goes down, selling his braced knee. Ray gets on Jericho's shoulders, a victory roll for a two, but goes back to selling the knee. He jumps on Jericho on the apron, but Jericho <laughs> spins round and guillotines him on the top rope. Jericho puts the ring steps in play, runs up them and drops a forearm. Mysterio does what today calls an inverted DDT, I guess. Jericho zooms off of the top with a somersault sent on, as though Mysterio is selectively selling his knee. He then flapjacks Jericho onto the steps. That was excellent. Jericho is still on the second rope. Mysterio leaps up and goes for a head scissors. Jericho jumps off with him, blocks the head scissors, lands on his feet and turns it straight into a lion tamer. Mysterio submits immediately and Jericho is the new champion. Jericho actually grabs the mic, cuts a deluded face pro and then starts attacking Mysterio's knee. Jericho chases Mysterio's knee to the ring steps then grabs a production crate and rams it into his knee. Basically, Mysterio's going to be out for about four to six months. They are, having, having had him wrestle on a gammy knee for about 12 months, they kind of worked out that putting off surgery was a bad idea. Um, so they're going to have it. So this was, uh, this was part of all of that. Rory, what do you think? I thought this was great. This is what turning heel actually means or what it should mean. Okay. It isn't just the case of you've been a good guy for a while. Then you cut a promo saying, oh, I hate the fans. Then the bell rings and you wrestle the same way you, you've always done. It's not that at all. And Chris Jericho has been revelatory in this role. He completely gets it. He's still working the same style, but he's working it from a completely different plane. You know, he's diving off the steps this time. He's ramming his opponent's knee with a, with a production truck. Uh, he's, he's working heel. And he's making sure there's no way that people can actually cheer him when you add to it the brilliant deluded primers, which he's so good at. Ray hung with him all the way because the guy, no, he might, he might as well have not had a legitimate injury. I still would have believed he had one because the guy just oozes sympathy out of every pore. And that finish was brilliant. It showed that a heel can win in a cool, cold, calculating way, but without just cheating. I got the sense that Jericho was waiting his moment, that Jer- uh, but uh, Mysterio would make a mistake. And on his gammy knee, he goes to the second rope for a head scissors that Jericho knows he's not going to be capable of pulling off. So he thinks, yep, I've got it. I'm going to drive him down straight into my finisher, which looked seamless. And because he's injured, he's going to tap right away. Simple storytelling. Yes, but done in a very complex way. Makes Jericho look good, makes him look a right bastard without just being a conniving, you know, moustache twirler. Everyone still loves Mysterio. Who's going to get some time off? Jericho gets, I hope, a run with a belt, which is just going to enhance his character more and more. And I thought this was just a great piece of business. Bob? 
I thought it was a great way to get Chris Jericho over in his heel persona. Uh, I, last year when he was the, the good guy, uh, putting his bag back, back against the railing and nobody would touch him. <laughs> he's not a very likable guy, I guess. You know, nobody wanted that pure baby face. Um, you know, I love the fans type of thing. And now he's playing that in there where he's even acknowledging now you really like me. Uh, even though nobody ever really has. Um, I liked how at the end of uh, all this, he was like, I'm sorry. He even said, like, I'm sorry to Mysterio as he's getting carried out of the ring. A little added salt to the wounds there. Um, is, the only thing I could think of is as a critique here is maybe it's he's being wasted in the cruiserweight division. Like maybe if he were to be challenging for the television title or something. But, of course, you know, Rey Mysterio is a really good option for the sympathy part and – Obviously, he's one of the more popular wrestlers, so Jericho destroying him and, and taking him out of action for, as you noted, four to six months gives him immediate heat, probably one of the most rising heels in the company. Um, so, I mean, I, I'm looking forward to seeing Jericho grow into this role. And, and I mean, he, Rory's right. I mean, he, he completely gets it. He knows how to how to get that heat magnet going up for him, the heat meter. Um, this was just a really good exhibition for Jericho to show the ruthlessness that a heel needs to have. And it was executed very well. Yeah, I wasn't quite as hard as this as you two were, but it was, it was fine. You know, I, I, I'm not a brilliant fan of, you know, the whole Mysterio's got a knee injury, which he perpetually seems to have. And, oh, look, he can, he can still fly around. It's like it always looks a bit weird. I, I know the idea is he digs deep, but it always looks a bit ridiculous. Match was good. Finish was very, very good. Um, I, I, I'm gonna hold the, I'm gonna hold back whether I think, uh, you know, I, I think I'll hold my judgment on Jericho's turn until we actually see it kind of play out. Although I think, uh, you know, deluded babyface is a, is a good place to start for a heel turn, no doubt. Um, but yeah, he, he does need to add some depth, but this is a start. But yeah, match was good. Um, and so I thought the finish was really well done. Um, that looks seamless. Jericho catching Mysterio as he's trying to do a head scissors and then just dropping down to, uh, you know, from two rope height down to the mat, straight into a submission. And I also like Mysterio not hanging on. Um, I'm quite a big fan of people just tapping out. Um, very decisive minute finish. Uh, if Jericho can have matches like this and can adapt his character and he can have the right opponents, he's got a chance, uh, which is, uh, Probably all you can ask. We're in the ring with me, Gene Oakland and J.J. Dillon. Out comes Roddy Piper. Piper says he feels partly responsible regarding the title situations. He was the one that made Sting and Hogan for the first time. Hogan knows more ways to win the title than Bill Clinton's got alleged girlfriends. Piper's still great. Piper calls out Sting and Hogan, who out comes, with, uh, comes out with Bischoff and Scott Hall. Piper says Hall should get the first shot of the champion. The main problem is we don't have one. Which is, well... Some logic, I suppose. He then fakes out giving Hogan the title, and we're going to get Hogan and Sting at Starcade instead. Sting then squares up the Hogan, and they back off. Piper eventually readies himself for a fight. Hogan wants back up, but Hall walks away. Sting then does a six-style crotch shot, or something like that, at least. Uh, Bob, what do you think of this? This, I guess, was the extension of what they did at uh, Thunder. A bit of direction, I suppose. Got Hogan on the show, got Sting on the show. Um, but not for the last time tonight. Uh, an element of Nitro... Um, 
whether the show needed it or not, I don't know. What did you think? Uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, as soon as this segment was happening, I felt like I was watching Nitro uh, on pay-per-view. I've, I've never been a fan of lengthy in-ring promos or interviews while watching a pay-per-view. Uh, it should, to me, it should just be constant wrestling matches, maybe a couple of backstage segments, what have you. But I, you noted that you said that Piper, you know, is, is great and everything. Uh, to me, in this in this role, I mean, he, he's acting like he's trying to be cool. The whole not joke. Oh, I should put the belt on Hogan's waist. Not, nah, you know, like that's not cool. That's like a dad trying to be cool, and it just doesn't work out very well. So I got like annoyed with that. Um, you know, I, the way that I took this, like. There should be a way here for Scott Hall to maybe turn turn on Hogan, you know, having to wait for his title shot. You know, Super Brawl is his. So there is, like, another layer there, dissension p- potentially with New World Order. So it, I guess it does serve a purpose, and it sets up the following month's main event. Um, but, I mean, this is something they probably could have just done on Nitro and, and maybe thrown a filler match in here or something along those lines. But I it, – Instinct with the crotch chops, like that's like not his thing. You know, it's just it's just a weird dynamic and a weird uh, direction to go in. I I felt like, yeah, an evolution of Sting, but I don't know that that was uh, necessarily what we wanted. Rory, what do you think? Yeah, it served its purpose, but that was the problem. Really, it was promoting a big match for next month's pay per view, thereby Orbit admitting that this pay per view, which you've plonked down thirty five dollars or whatever to watch isn't really worth your time. You could have skipped this one. Now, it's next month. It's a really important one. And as a member of the Pay and Public, I would feel pretty miffed by that. And that is exactly why, as you know, you guys have rightly said, this felt like Nitro. That's where this should have been. They could have done this the next day on a Nitro, which itself was fairly quiet anyway. And I don't think anybody would really have complained. The segment itself was fine, apart from Sting doing the crotch chop. Uh, don't do that again, my friend. That's, uh yeah. Don't waste pay-per-view time promoting the next pay-per-view. It just rubbing, it just it rubs me up the wrong way when this happened. I want to feel, even when I know it's a B show and sold out certainly was, I want to feel that it's important enough for me to pay my money for. If you're saying that, oh, you really want to wait till next month, then I'm going to feel a bit miffed. It's fine. I didn't have a problem with them. Doing this kind of segment, I mean, there's, there's plenty of matches that could have stunk up the joint in its place. So it's not like, you know, be careful what you wish for to a point. Um, I, I guess my problem with it was more just a bit clunky. Old Piper's back and he's, you know, he's, I don't think he's been around for a while. and He's all of a sudden got authority again. You know, at a time when JJ didn't seem to have something going for him, although who knows where they might be going with Dylan's character. Um, I just, you know, again, this was the... Well, I said correcting the wrong from Thunder, but it was kind of the, the next step of it. Um, it just, you know, again, it's like we stripped Sting of the title, so he's got to get it back to him somehow. Um, it just seems a little strange, though, that you had two Sting and Hogan matches with no decide, well, no clear, undeniable winner, decisive, perhaps not necessarily the right word. And yet, your answer to that is to have another one. So we've had two. Like, I'm not saying change it up, although Sting and Hall would have been an interesting, you know, we talk about this, this, uh, this interesting dynamic with Hogan and Hall. It perhaps would have been far more effective had Piper had said, well, Sting is the guy that was the champion, and Hall's the guy that's owed the shot. Hogan, you get the winner. Um, and then you can take that in a lot of different directions. 
um, various different ones actually. But again, the problem was was that the you know in terms of selling pay per views, Sting and Hogan was the only thing that was going to sell. So I think that's the one they had to push. I don't mind having these kind of segments. You don't want too many. Pay per views should be largely about the action. Um, but to me, it was it was more about what they did and how they did it. I, I guess perhaps understandably, they're both just perhaps more creative options they could have taken. Next up, it's Rick Martel versus Booker T for the WCW Television Title. And Alison's talking about Booker T. Shivoni tells Heenan and Dusty they need to communicate better. He's only about three years late to the draw on that one. Martel goes for a hip toss. Booker blocks it and hits Martel down to the mat. Booker floors him with a side kick and another kick to the jaw. A miscommunication, I think, as they go for a leapfrog and Booker ends up nutting Martel on the chest. Martel picks Booker up with a spine buster. Booker rallies but misses a drop kick. Martel tries to roll Booker over for a Boston Crab. But Booker gets to the ropes. Booker drops Martel with a big scissors kick, goes to the top and hits a Harlem Hagover for the three. After the match, Martel raises Booker's hand and shakes his hand. Perry Saturn runs out and hits a side suplex on Martel. Booker then runs him off. For what it's worth, it's pretty clear from the replay that Booker missed by quite a long way. Rory? Ah, yes, Rick Martel, the real master and ruler of the world. Um, when I discovered that WCW had signed him, I expected him to be put into the Bobby Eaton role i.e. a name who you'll only really see turn up on Worldwide or Pro before it was axed, having six or seven matches, uh, six or seven minute matches with people like Booker T, an established, being an established name, put them over, and then we don't see them again until the next set of tapings. But, and here's my theory, because the WWF were linked with Martel a few months ago, they've decided to give him the God push, and he has won every single match he's been in up until this one. He gets to beat Eddie Guerrero in three minutes, completely clean. And it, apparently he was actually going to win the TV title on his debut at the end of last year, but he forgot his gear. Yeah, they haven't punished him for that. Again, he is somebody who has taken his opportunity and he's run with it. I mean, the guy's 41, he's 42 in March, but he's got himself in, he's in great shape. He's clearly taken his run seriously and he can still go in the ring. There's, no doubt about that, he's still got a lot of ability. And in that respect, he is the right opponent for Booker, who is somebody I go back and forth on. I was singing his praises on these shows about six months ago. Now he's getting a bit more of a singles run. <coughs> uh, the, the jury's back out for me, really. He's a bit erratic. His moveset, he hasn't really got that down. Selling ropey, doesn't always hit his finisher. He does need a bit of seasoning. And again, much like with Jericho, if you keep the belt on him, it's going to make him work harder, I think. Yeah. Match was good. No more, no less. I think people have been a bit harsh on this one. I saw Melter gave it a star. It was better than that. It's nothing earth-shattering, but Martel is somebody who is a good hand. They're treating as if he's the greatest hand who ever held, but okay. He gets to see off uh, Saturn at the end. I mean, okay, who in their work sweep at the beginning of last year had a WCW feud between Perry Saturn and Rick Martel? Uh, I'll show you a good liar if uh, if that's you. But yeah, all fine here and uh, no harm done. Bob, uh, yeah, I've, I've always liked Rick Martel, um, but I don't know if I like him in this role. You know, going over various younger talents on TV kind of diminishes their role. Uh, this match is pretty forgettable to me. Uh, I was expecting at some point Martel to turn heel. 
maybe give it more of a purpose, maybe like midway and still lose. And then after the match was over, I was still waiting for him to turn on Booker. You know, when he raised his when he raised his arm, I was expecting maybe a short arm clothesline or something, but nothing happened. Uh, the Perry Saturn thing, um, I guess I totally forgot about Saturn throwing Martel through a a glass plate window uh, randomly on Thunder the two days before this uh, event, uh, which came out of nowhere. I don't know. Maybe they didn't like Martel's arrogance, you know, back in 92 or 91 or whatever. But, uh, you know, it, this was just, it was just there for me. It just it wasn't, I didn't really enjoy it. I'm all, I'm all in on Booker T and his singles run. Uh, he brings a lot of life to the mid card. Uh, I'm glad that he broke away from Harlem Heat with Stevie Ray, whether it was injury injury related or not. Um, so I'm excited to see where where Booker goes and the challenges that he faces moving forward. I, I can I could get behind a Booker Martell Saturn like three way feud, but uh, Martell in this role in '98 it just it doesn't really doesn't really do it for me. Yeah, Martell is, you know, I thought Martell disappeared for good. I, I know he briefly appears when we first covered WWF a few years ago, but I kind of thought Martell was done. I mean, we and Rory were speaking off air about guys that that, that look better now they're less inflated. Uh, I'll stick Rick Martell on the list of, of guys that included Randy Savage and Hulk Hogan. Um, but this is a weird pairing. Um, yeah, we talk about Nitro angles on the pay-per-view. The, the post-match was kind of like similar to what they've been doing on Nitro with Martel going to the, the aid of Booker T after matches. Um, yeah, the match was okay. It was not better than that. Like the, a couple of miscommunications, otherwise just flat. No one's really sure to make it, what to make of either guy. Uh, I think Booker's got the potential to be a good you know, a good singles act, but he needs more than Rick Martel to work off of. He's probably where I'll, uh, Next up, it's Scott Hall with Luis Piccoli versus Larry Zabisco and his insurance plan, Dusty Rhodes. Zabisco takes him down and Hall doesn't look pleased. He follows that with a fireman's carry. They shout for a test of strength and shimmy both ways. Larry just slaps him and goes for an abdominal stretch. With the rest distracted, Spicoli gets a shot in. Dusty gets on the move and Spicoli doesn't want part of that. Section fans start chanting Larry sucks all ho- all hall at this moment in time, although there's a decent hall sucks chant going too. Zabisco counters an outside edge with the backdrop and starts unloading with punches. He goes for a spin kick but takes out the referee. Hall goes for the cover but the ref's selling his back. Zabisco starts playing possum. Hall walks into a submission track, uh, trap, sorry. Spicoli jumps in and forces a DQ. Dusty jumps in and drops some bionic elbows on Spicoli who sells them very well. He then goes to Elbow Hall, Hall ducks out of the way and Dusty elbows Zabisco. He then unbuttons his shirt and reveals an NWO shirt underneath. Dusty says that's <coughs> tradition by this. Rory. Oh dear, okay, right. Uh, the match then. Uh, not a whole lot going on here. Hall did his best, but Larry is so set in his ways, Hall struggled to work around him. When I talked about this show having a retro feel, Zabisco doing armbar after armbar after armbar is a very prime example of what I meant. So we'll skip those eight or nine minutes and we'll go straight to the finish. Although I'd rather not talk about that either. The only real positive I could think of at this point about Dusty Rhodes turning heel and joining the NWO is that it wasn't completely out of nowhere. Hall did actually drop his name on the Nitro before this. 
But other than that, I'm pretty much out of positives. It's as if they sat down in a room and thought, okay, we had the false start with Bobby Heenan last month, and nobody's actually joined the NWR. Who we got? Who shall we have? We need somebody to do it for the first time in a while. Yeah, got uh, Shivani there, got Tane. Oh, and let's have Dusty do it. Yeah, why not? And yes, he plays that role well. But in fact, when was the last time Dusty was a heel on television? Like in the late 70s or something? Nobody wants to see it. People have got used to Dusty Rhodes being the doddery, uncool uncle who you like and respect, even though he talks utter nonsense 98% of the time. Now, he doesn't need to join the NWO. It makes no sense. I mean, he's berated them on commentary for the last 18 months. He, when he talks about tradition, the NWO are completely against the tradition of people like Dusty Rhodes. That's their modus operandi. He sticks out like a sore thumb anyway, and they're really going to have to square the circle they've set for themselves for me to enjoy this turn. Yeah, not a good match, and a turn that, although it was well executed in its own individual context, we just didn't need to see it. Bob? Uh, yeah, no, I, I did not like this at all. Um, anytime you have Scott Hall in a match and you're depending on him to carry it to a good match, you're probably in trouble. And I've never really enjoyed Sabisco dating back to the early WCW days. Uh, so I, going into this, I was anticipating... Uh, just a boring match, and that's exactly what I got. The Dusty Rhodes heel turn, they made it. I mean, Tony Schiavone and his over-the-top selling of it is just kind of comical at this point, as if, you know, I, I get the whole traditional, you know, WCW, NWA, turning its back, turning his back on WCW, but what was Dusty really doing the last three years on TV? He was a C-level commentator on Saturday night. You know, it's not going to be the end of the world. To me as a viewer, if I'm watching it and I see Dusty Rhodes joining with the enemy, uh, I, I didn't like it. Uh, it just felt like something they threw against the wall to see if it would stick and maybe it, it probably really didn't have any plan for it following it. Um, and the whole buildup leading into it, I was not interested in it. I know they've been carrying this on since it, at least the fall of 97. Uh, I'm just hopeful that it's over and I don't have to see it again. Yeah, I think it was just a, a marriage of convenience, this dusty turn. As we kind of said in the news, they, you know, I, I suspect for a while they've wanted a reason to get him off of commentary, both the Saturday night and the pay-per-views and any other TV he's doing. Um, you know, and maybe if you take him off of commentary and don't give him anything to do, then you're just left with Dusty Rhodes, whereas at least if he's the NWO, he can be there. Um, as I say, there was also this idea that, you know, they still haven't completely got the message regarding this NWO TV show. Um, but apparently they want to have Dusty as a viable uh, colour commentator because Rick Rude's so bad. Um, Roy, what's happened to Rick Rude and Kurt Henning? Because it be able to neither of them appear this month. <coughs> they did not appear on any television at all this month. Certainly not uh, the television I watched. Uh, Nitro and the Main Thunder. I don't even remember seeing them mentioned, uh, reading some, some of the reports in the sheets or even some of the house show reports. So I've got no idea what's happened to them. Uh, has Rick Rude had a shave again recently? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I, I should point out, I mean, Henning and I'm not sure if it was Rude, but Henning was on Saturday nights leading into or throughout the month. I know he had a rematch uh, with DDP on Saturday okay. night. 
So well, you might not have been on the main television. That depends on when they were taped, though, is always going to be the right. point. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, there was some weird things with, I think, WCW Worldwide, where it was like Booker T wrestling a singles match, not for the TV title against, you know, Jacqueline was, you know, Jacqueline's gone, by the way. You know, spoiler alert. Um, you know, other things as well, weird things going on with the syndicated TVs. Um, but yeah, uh, it's just a lot. None of us have really commented on the match. Um, I, I'm ready not to see Larry Zabisco anymore. I, I think Rory and Jeff may have got there last month. I think I finally got there with this show. Um, I think he's he, he's outstayed his usefulness now. Um, the turn was okay. Like, it was unexpected in the sense you wouldn't, you know, it was just like such a completely stupid nonsensical idea. You'd never see it coming. Um, maybe they did it for the right reasons. Maybe they didn't. Um, I just don't know what Dusty Rhodes does in the NWO now. Like, you know, is he just another guy that walks out? Um you know, maybe Dusty's the, you know, maybe Dusty can be the guy that can rally the troops, but I think he ends up turning the world baby first, which would be a bit weird. I don't know. It's all a bit weird. Anyway. Well, next is Scott Norton, Buck Bagwell and Conan with Vincent versus the Steiners, Rick and Scott with Teddy Piazzi and Ray Trailer. This is basically the match we didn't get at Starcade. Shivoni has left the commentary team, so it's Bobby Ian on his own, although I suspect Tanae will join us very soon. Or in fact, Tony who then turns back, but Tanae is also here. The face is dark on Bagwell in their corner. Tony's still nursing the shock over Dusty's betrayal. Rick drops all three of them. Trailer hits a big splash in the corner. Trailer's moving big here, runs around the houses to lay out Norton and then drops Bagwell on the floor. Norton floors trailer, nothing happening at all at the moment. Shivoni says the crowd are in shock, but I don't think it's that time. Scott gets in the rest face. Wouldn't be a buff Bagwell match without a rest hold, though. This one is at least mercifully short. Scott launches Norton with a couple of big suplexes. He then drops Conan with a stylish screwdriver. Apparently Conan wore that pretty badly. Um, and mercifully, the match is over. After the match, Bagwell just starts having a chat with Scott. Scott flexes. Bagwell gives him a bit back. They're telling the story of Scott being pissed off with just about everyone after what happened on TV, where there was a tag match for Steiner, and Scott never tagged out. Um, Bob, we, we got this match at Starcade. I didn't need to see it again. I completely agree. I I don't know why they just throw things out there just to put them on pay-per-view. Um, it's, I don't really even rem- – I mean, I just watched the show the other day, and I don't even really remember anything about the match. I just know that the Scott Steiner and Buff Bagwell interactions kind of bizarre to me, the whole idea of two guys just flexing at each other and being obsessed with their bodies just doesn't really interest me all that much, I guess. Um the only positive is that I really like the Steiner screwdriver and I got to see it on pay-per-view. That was about it. Rory. Yeah, I like watching the Steiner screwdriver. I don't think I'd enjoy taking it quite so much. Though. I mean, that does look absolutely lethal. And yes, as you said, Bob, uh, Conan was pretty much, uh, he was wearing it for a while afterwards, let's say that. But that's the only thing I can remember from this match. I, I literally cannot remember a single other thing about it from bell to bell. Not even, not even the flex off at the end. How could I forget that? Yes. This was just basic storyline advancement for what looks like the Steiners breaking up. I'm not sure I really want to see Scott and Rick feud. not entirely sure the crowds do either. That's the only thing to say about this, so take it quickly. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the Steiner breakup, I'm, you know, I, I'm interested to see where that goes. I say it's interesting that the Bishop has just kind of gone, right, no more tag teams. Uh, maybe he's right. Uh, you know, it it's easier to 
to stack people up from two singles acts into a tag team that is the other way around. I know that's what they're doing right now, but it's easy generally to do that. Um, you know, and there is always the Vincent Mann thing. Well, it's one match, right? I don't want to have to pay, you know, four guys to do one match when I can have two. Um, so there's that. Um, yes, but Tony Schiavone was, that's the thing. I, I, I guess to, to dovetail back into the previous match, the, the one thing I kind of got, Dusty turned heel and it really wasn't that big a deal. Like, yeah, the crowd didn't massively pop for it. There was no massive reaction. Then you come out of this one, you've got Shivoni trying to nurse this massive amount of shock. And everyone's like, eh, whatever. Um, yeah, I suspect there was a little bit of that, but I suspect a lot of the, the crowd becalmed us was perhaps more trying to work out what was going on with the Dusty Turn rather than necessarily being all blown away by it. Um, but yeah, this match was bad. Um, you know, Scott Norton, Buff Bagwell and Conan, he's not a good combination. Ray Trailer's not good either. Um, and as I say, there's, there's interesting stuff with the Steiners. Um, you know, I, I, I liked, we don't see it very often. Like, uh, you know, guys on opposing teams just mouthing off at each other a little bit. You know, Bagwell and Scott kind of got in quite close together and just exchanged words. And I like that. You know, apparently they might be angling towards Scott joining the NWR. I kind of hope he doesn't. Um, I don't think we need everyone in the NWR. They just think like they're going somewhere with it at least. Um, but yeah, the less said about this match, the better. So let's, uh, let's move on to a match that was probably the most promoted match uh, leading into the show. Kevin Nash with Hulk Hogan and Eric Bischoff versus the Giant. As I kind of said the news, as we'll kind of say later, one thing about Hulk Hogan this month, around a lot more. Um, I think that's more storyline than it is not, but Hogan's been kind of, you know, trying to hold everything together, and we'll talk about all that in a bit. Storyline coming into this match, didn't really discuss it before the pay-per-view, but again, one of the more promoting things that's been going on. Um, basically, Giant said, I'm sick of waiting for Nash, um, and they said Nash has to uh, put up a 1.5 million performance bond, which not for the last, or not for the first time, sorry, um, was a a less than thinly veiled reference to Hulk Hogan's deal. Uh, Eric Bischoff in December mentioned the figure $7.5 million to Eric Bischoff, which apparently is what Hulk Hogan's contract is worth over the lifetime of the contract, which I assume will be two years. And then the $1.5 million was in reference to Hogan's raise relative to what he got before, as at least as I understand it. Um, so basically they said Nash has to put up $1.5 million, or if he doesn't face Giant, he'll be fired. Then on the flip side, they said, well, fine, but in return, Giant has to put up $1.5 million, and if he had tax Nash before the show he loses the money so they both accepted that and then of course it gave Nash free reign to get in Giant's face piss him off a bit and Giant couldn't attack him back so onto the match they square off Giant shoves Nash he does the belly to uh, he then bellies to back Nash a slow pace as Giant smashes Nash in the corner three times Nash manages a leapfrog which got no reaction as I put in my notes presumably the crowd are still you know reeling over Dusty's turn Nash actually then does a standing dive over the top rope to the floor it's a good effort but he kind of clips his shin on the way down and Giant has to kind of catch him and kind of ram him into the ring post Nash rolls into the ring the ref tends to him and Hogan smashes a chair over Giant's back the ref can't see it but apparently he also can't hear it Giant almost doesn't beat a 10 count they argue about the rules far be it for me to point out that Nash would have been disqualified from throwing himself over the top rope but that's the commentators for you Nash strikes Giant into the ropes does two running lead drops on him both men go down as Giant barely kicks out he slowly rallies with an atomic drop and some clotheslines Giant does a Hogan style big boot and points to Hogan. He signals for the choke slam, which wakes up Bischoff and Hogan on the other side of the ring. And Bischoff gets choke slammed into the ring. 
Hogan hands Nash some coffee. Nash then chucks it into Giant's face. He goes for a jackknife powerbomb. Giant gets maybe a third of the way up the move. Nash completely loses him and just drops Giant straight on his neck and shoulders. Nash makes the pin, wins the match, and then sees to kind of hang in for a little bit longer. Basically, like, are you all right? Sorry, mate, etc., etc. Um, the fans are pretty flat as Giant hasn't moved afterwards. There's medics checking on him, but they're putting patches over his eyes for the coffee shop, uh, which in some respects kind of ruined all the drama. The fact they were doing the work treatment when there was a, at least the very real possibility of a of a real injury. Um, Rory, unpack all of this. <laughs> if I must, okay. Like all sentient beings, I was expecting this one to be a complete and utter dumpster fire, and it became one. But for the first five or six minutes, this was the decent side of watchably bad. Let's call it that. Okay. Uh, it was very, very slow. Stars were born and died in the time it took them to go from one move to another. But it was fine. It was, I'll hit a big power move. You hit another one. I can live with that. That's the best I'm going to get for these guys. But it all fell apart when... Nash got his Lismark Jr. on and tried to dive over the top rope. <laughs> no, Kev. No, no, no. no. <laughs> You're anti these guys in the back for a reason. Yeah, don't, <laughs> don't try and meet them halfway by doing what they do. And it was a complete mess then. Bischoff getting a choke slam was probably the best part of the remaining second half of the match. Using coffee as a weapon, which seems to be Nash's tertiary finisher these days. I thought that they need to drop that. It's just stupid. Now, I felt sorry for Bobby Heenan on commentary trying to say, look at that scalding hot coffee. You can see the, you can see the steam rising. Uh, no, no steam. Bobby. No. <laughs> Not at all. And then we get to that finish. Oh, dear, that finish. Nash has powerbombed the Giant before. Did it last year. Yet there is a lot more of the Giant to go round in 1998. I think he had a very full and fun Christmas period. Let's say that. And he barely left the ground. Nash wasn't in control of the move at all. You could tell that by the fact he fell over. And he hangs around for a bit on the ground. When he goes for the cover, if you whack the volume up really loud, you can hear somebody say words to the effect of, I'm really sorry. And I think it's actually Giant who says that. And ultimately, that would make sense because he's predominantly culpable for this move. He's the one who's got to manoeuvre himself up to a safe position so he's got enough room to drop back and land. And he probably said to Nash in the back that yes, he's able to do it. But when push came to shove, fairly literally, he lands right on his head. And that is the only thing, the only real talking point coming out of this match. They tried to make an angle out of it, which is either a very good thing or a very bad thing. I'm not too sure about that one yet. But yes, it started as promisingly as a match like this could be. And it ended as badly as I was really expecting it to be. Bob? Uh, let's just say, for comparison, I'd rather watch the opening match uh, more times than I would want to watch this one. Uh, these guys, uh, big guys versus big guy matches are just not something that I necessarily enjoy to watch. It was slow. Um, it felt, I felt like I was. it took forever to get through this. Um the finish to me was kind of bizarre. I mean, the hot coffee thing when it wasn't hot at all, and then the trainers come out after he after Giant got dropped on his neck and are focusing on his eyes. I feel like if I got coffee thrown in my face and I had just been dropped on my neck and I'm 500 pounds, I probably would want to focus on my neck, but that's just me. 
Um, I don't know. These, this felt like a, a situation where the giant should have gotten like a level of revenge or something on the NWO. He doesn't have a lot of momentum. Uh, I can't really recall a, a big win over the NWO and he's kind of positioned as one of the top guys for WCW in their fight against the NWO. Nash not being there at Starcade, you know, delaying it a little bit. It seemed like this could have been a situation where Giant just steamrolls over Nash and kind of positions positions himself uh, moving forward as a as one of the top guys. But the finish doesn't really help anybody. Um, I just, I mean, it's just a convoluted finish that probably wasn't necessary. I thought this, like, if, if you're if you're tuning into the pay per view, you, you would think this was the main event. But I guess with what they did, I mean, there's no way you probably can end a pay-per-view like this. So it's uh, just not a good match. So, yeah, Nash and Giant, I I, I wasn't, you know, I I did quite like this. You know, I I like Nash busting out a lot of the big moves. Um, You know, the Leapfrog got a surprising lack of reaction, which is a bit strange. Nash throwing himself over the top, Giant kind of having to save him and the ram into the ring post. Interference with Hogan, I mean, you can't exactly say there wasn't a lot going on in this match, at least. Um, I am ready for coffee shots to be consigned to the the you know, list of shit finishes along with high heeled shoes from 1996 as things I don't want to see again um, as for the finish it looked very very awkward um, you know in some respects it's a miracle that he got him up for one last year more or less the fact that he couldn't do it this time looked awkward I just you know, it, it's a bit unfortunate they had the whole coffee shop thing planned and the post-match, the, the medics come out and you genuinely think they were checking on it. And I expect to put in a genuinely were, as in I suspect they went out and, you know, whether they were medics or not, I'm not sure, but they probably went out and said, is your neck okay? Because they both went in to have a chat to him. And he went, yeah, it's fine. You know, apparently he's feeling a bit worse aware, but clearly, you know, didn't have any significant issues. And then they went to the worked angle of covering the eyes up to cover the coffee shot. It kind of ruined the angle a little bit when they did that. But but there we are. Moving on next, what some people call the main event of the show, Ric Flair against Bret Hart. Bret, for what it's worth, is essentially the face here. We start with him working a side headlock. He drops a toehold, locks in a figure four, two minutes into the match, and the first real murmur from the crowd. Flair quickly gets to the ropes. Tanae brings up Hart's recent use of the figure four around the ring post. Flair gets up and shoves Hart. Hart immediately fires back with a slap, and Flair retreats to the floor. Flair gets on top. I think we can safely say that Brett's working a face here because other than the figure four, he hasn't gone near Flair's, Flair's legs. Flair, start, uh, Flair with that gets a good reaction for a top chop rather he then asks the ref for a time check in two flare fashion the ref then walks over to ask how much time's left and with that he goes downstairs and low blows Hart Hart finally shows some fright back and hits a swinging net breaker and a bulldog he then goes for a figure four around the ring post but Flair just kicks him into the guardrail Flair shakes for a figure four but Brett almost takes it with an inside cradle Brett goes to argue with the ref but Flair shoulder tackles the back of his knee and this time the figure four goes on Flair starts slapping him. This has been uh, in for at least a minute until Flair, Brett finally starts and turn the moves over. Hart has a Russian leg sweep. Flair chops him twice. Brett backs him across the ring and Flair begs off. They go for a superplex. Flair almost goes too early and that could have gone badly wrong. Still, Brett hits it, locks in the sharpshooter and Flair submits. Bob? Um, You know, I, I might be on the minority on this one, but Bret Hart and Ric Flair just don't have good matches for me. Um, When Bret won the title 
in 92, like that was good. And that, that was a good match. But then I saw their, a few of their house show matches from like 92, 93. And they're just not, they just don't seem to really work very well. They're both set in their ways to me. Um, at one point in the match, Brett does a swinging neck breaker and it was kind of botched. They somehow collided heads on it and they just laid on the mat for a couple of seconds there, selling that part of it. Um, I mean, it's just, it's a formula match to me. Flair doesn't really do much offensively to keep me interested and Brett does his usual routine. It's okay. It's not a classic. It's not like, it's not the greatest versus the greatest type of match that you would think or maybe expect the way that they were building it. Uh, to me, it was just a forgettable heart flair match that had very little purpose or story behind it. Roy. It's not often we say this about anybody with Bret Hart, but these two just don't have chemistry together. And I think Bret knows it. When he did his Prodigy web chat at the end of November, in which he gave the old non-apology apology for the things he said about Ric Flair in the past, uh, I, I could see right through that. I know that Bret's dislike of the way that Flair works is very much ingrained. And you could tell in this, in this match, I think Bret, in all fairness to him, was trying to tell the story which this match had been building up to, which was which of these two legends is the best wrestler? When he's doing things like going for Flair's figure four finisher in the first minute, that's the sort of thing I want to see. Now that plays into that story. Yet, Flair just wheeled out the hits yet again, and this wasn't the place for it. You know, prove that you're a great wrestler. That's You've been saying that on the mic. Now, now isn't the time for the the flare strut or the flop or putting on the figure of four and slapping your opponent in it. Now we've seen you be doing that for 10 years now. Now, are you capable of doing anything else, especially when the match is predicated on that very premise? And that really, really annoyed me. What the two of them did was, was competent. It was above competent. This match was perfectly watchable. There was nothing really particularly bad about it. But it didn't feel like an important match. I can see why it wasn't the main event now, taking that into consideration. And it was a letdown based on what it could and should have been. Because Flair knows it can get by on name alone these days. And nobody, not even Bret Hart, is going to tell him any differently. And it's a shame. But I've got to say, I was kind of expecting it. Was that an attempt at a Canadian accident or specifically the attempt at a Jeff Parker accident? <laughs> uh, wait until I'm on the show with Jeff and he can rightly rip me for it in a few months' time. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, th- this was a, a kind of a throwback match. I don't necessarily mean that in a good way. Um, it felt like, uh, yeah, it felt like a Bret Hart match from the early 90s. And again, Bret being this back as a bay face is a bit weird but you know there's only so much they could have done about that um the match was fine again though this you know this is flair's best match for a while but that isn't saying that much anymore flair's not having great matches anymore this wasn't one either um it was a very slow methodical you know it, in many ways i probably like this match more because i haven't seen it for a while I haven't seen Bret Hart wrestle this kind of match for over a year, and I haven't seen Ric Flair wrestle this kind of match for a couple of years either. Um, 
but that's probably the reason why I like this match more than necessarily that it was any good. Um, Brett was the rightful winner. It was a good, well-told story. But yes, I agree. I think it lacked drama. Um, you know, it lacked consequences, I guess, to a point. Like, you know, as much as it perhaps would have been, or much as it perhaps is a better idea just to go with Sting and Hogan, I don't hate the idea that you could have done this title tournament and then you could have done Brett and Flair as a, as a meaningful match. Um, this wasn't necessarily that, but then again, it was, you know, it was just a stepping stone for Brett. Um, in that sense, it worked. Um, but I, I don't think I was quite as hard on this match as, uh, as some people necessarily were, but it at least felt fresh and different and it, it stood out because it was old school. I, I guess is what I'd say. Anyway, moving on to what actually is the main event. Uh, Michael Buffer on hand, not sure why they needed him here. And it's Franny Savage with Miss Elizabeth versus Lex Luger. Luger runs out to Savage, who's enticed him up the entrance ramp. Liz runs up behind Luger and shoves him, and that gives Savage the opening he needs. Savage distracts the referee. Liz leans through the ropes and chokes Luger with Savage's bandana. Luger comes off of the ropes, and Liz grabs hold of his leg. Savage sends him to the floor. Savage hits a double axe handle off of the top to the floor and then Liz then slaps Luger. We go deep into the crowd and Luger sends Savage into a railing. Returns to the ring, Luger sends Savage down twice. He signals to the rack and Scott Hall and Hulk Hogan come out. Luger slams Savage and signals to the rack but everyone's watching Hall and bickering for a bit. Hall gets on the apron, Hogan tries to stop him. Savage crashes into Hall, Luger wrecks Savage and wins the match. Afterwards, Nitro style, the NWO run out and attack Luger. Sting charges out and helps Luger clear out the ring. Luger <coughs> racks Nash, Sting puts Hogan in the deathlock to end the show. Rory? Uh, yeah, this match, these two didn't have good matches against each other in 95. They haven't had good matches with each other in early 98. And they haven't here when they had a pay-per-view to main event. I've said it so many times, Luger needs somebody to do pretty much all the work for him these days. You could argue that he always did. In that respect, it was a success. But as pay-per-view main events go, this was uh, not even in the books, I'm afraid. And that's something they've got to look at. Maybe this is the reason where, for all these issues, you do finish with Flair and Brett. This was not main event calibre in 1998, I'm afraid. Uh, I'm kind of in the same boat with Rory on this. Uh, there was no, no interest in me seeing Luger and Savage in the main event. Um, I felt like the whole purpose of this was to set up the after, uh, aftermath with the visual of Sting putting Hogan in the death lock, which is probably what fans wanted to see anyway. Uh, along with Luger racking Nash, maybe setting up an angle with those guys moving forward, but there, there wasn't enough. There was there wasn't anything that happened on, on television to warrant these guys to main event a pay per view. The work rate wasn't great. They did the usual spots, but uh, it was a, a pretty flat match. And then uh, I guess the only redeeming thing was the aftermath, which the crowd seemed to pop for. But it was a pretty weak way to finish the show, I thought. Yeah, they put this in the main event basically, um, basically because they. Yeah, they wanted to do this this finish at the end. I don't think it was necessarily a great idea, um, but you know that's kind of what they went for. Uh, as it as it was, it wasn't a great match by any stretch of the imagination. Um, it does fuel the the angle, which I guess was the point. Um, but yeah, nothing really to write home about, I suppose. Um, and that as, as a kind of 
quite flat way to, to, to end the pay-per-view review. Uh, Bob, your overall thoughts on the show and a score rating out of 10. Uh, scoring out of 10, I mean, it, the undercard was, was pretty enjoyable. I would say up until, you know, the, the midway point of the show really takes a dip in terms of work rates. Um, probably up until the Sabisco match, you know, is going towards a pretty good, pretty good show. Uh, all things considered and putting it all together, I mean, I feel like it's a less than average one. So uh, maybe like a five and a half to six. Uh, not a bad show, just not anything memorable, a filler show, and basically Nitro on pay-per-view. Roy? I'm going to go a little higher. I'm going to go six and a half, which for me is right on the apex between average and good. I would not recommend moving heaven and earth to watch this show, but if you do come across it and have a spare two hours, 40 minutes, it's worth sticking in. There's enough to keep you interested, even when the work rate takes a dip. And believe me, there are times where the work rate takes a monumental dip. Things are advanced. People who need to get pushes start getting pushes. There are some good matches on this show. And you do have a feel-good moment at the end for a company who like to screw up their feel-good moments <laughs> last month. But yes, six and a half. Nothing that's going to change the world, but if you do as I did, sit down one afternoon, take it all in one sitting. It's a fine wrestling show. I'll give it a six. Uh, it's okay. Um, not blown away by, by any of it necessarily. Um, no great match on this card. Nothing truly horrendous. A couple of things that, that edge that way. Um, it is entirely skiffable, which isn't ideal for a WCW pay-per-view. And I sense they knew that going in. Um, I, I guess it was, you know, you can build up Giant and Kevin Nash a lot, but it's very, very difficult to deliver anything off the back of those two guys, given they don't mesh very well. Um, yeah, Flair and Hart was significant, I guess. A, a nice old-school throwback match, but not the not the mossy coming together of the minds that you necessarily would have expected. Um, and then, yes, the main event was a very... Uh, yeah, it's like watching Nitro. We get a lot of those these days. So yeah, I'll give it a 6 out of 10. And joining me at this time, the chairman of the WCW Executive Committee, J.J. Dillon. And J.J., I understand you have a statement to make. You know, Mike, one of my closest friends for many, many years is none other than the enforcer, Arn Anderson. And as we all know, Arn Anderson had neck surgery this past year, and when the operation was over, the doctor's in effect told him that his career was over. And that might have been an opportune time for WCW and wrestling in general to look at our practices and look at our rules. But it seems that it always takes a single tragic incident to really focus on a particular situation. And anyone that was in Dayton or that watched Sold Out on pay-per-view knows exactly what I'm talking about. And the Giant is a prime example that with each passing year and with each generation, athletes in general, with all sports, they're bigger, they're faster, they're stronger, they're more powerful. And other sports have attempted to make adjustments in their rules uh, to try and compensate for the bigger, more powerful athlete of the 90s. Uh, with hockey, everybody, to my knowledge, is required to wear a protective helmet. With football, they've, they've stopped the, the spearing with the helmets. And here, with all the technology of developing 
the, the modern football helmet. When the Giant or any wrestler goes in the ring, they don't have the benefit of protective pads or helmets. And I'd really hope to come out here tonight and have some kind of an update on the Giant, but some tests have been performed and the results aren't back and there's more tests uh, being called for. And really the people, Mike, that are closest to him are being very tight-lipped about the situation. And I just sense that, that really it, it, it doesn't look very good. But the time has come for WCW to take some action. So effective immediately, right now, the jackknife powerbomb or any version of it is now barred at WCW. And this is not uh, this is not to single out Kevin Nash. I'm talking about any wrestler that attempts to execute the jackknife powerbomb or any version of it. And any wrestler that uses it will be disqualified, will be fined, and I'm talking about a substantial fine. And Kevin Nash, if you ever attempt to execute that move again on another wrestler, WCW will have you not only fined and disqualified in the match, but we'll have you escorted out of the building and WCW will explore the possibilities of criminal prosecution. We wrap up January in Fort Wayne, Indiana for the first edition of what will now be a permanently three hours worth of Nitro. Kicks off with Ultimo Dragon vs El Dandy as Dragon Sleeper is good for the win. Brad Armstrong comes to the ring wearing Armstrong Curse Jumper. You know, it's going to continue because he's facing Bill Goldberg. Probably the biggest crowd reaction yet for Goldberg. Geez, at a Nitro party in Chattanooga, don't ask. So today's on interview duties tonight. He grabs a word with Dylan. The giant will have to undergo more tests on his neck, but the current prognosis is not good. Therefore, effectively, immediately, anyone wants to, who wants to attempt the powerbomb will be fine and suspended, and even liable for criminal prosecution. There's a lot of heat for that. Conan defeats Jerry Flynn with the Tequila Sunrise. The match is little more than a backdrop for Larry to call wrestling these days too brutal. Tonight he tries to get pundit extraordinaire Mongo to talk about last night's Super Bowl, but he issues an open challenge for the locker room instead. Out walks out Davy Boy Smith, who's brought his promo skills with him as he calls himself a 20-year-old veteran. They will face each other later. Rick Steiner has Buff beaten after his botched bulldog. Scott throws Vincent into the ring for the disqualification. He walks off before his brother and DBRC can admonish him. Bischoff and Kevin Nash are out to start the second hour. Today is a sad day, as just like Bill Clinton, they have been the target of media manipulation. Nash tells us that sold out, he was merely trying to put the giant out of his misery, and the powerbomb was the jump start. From now on, he doesn't want to be called, be called Kevin Nash, but big sexy, the giant killer Kevin Nash. Wayne Bloom and Anvil managed to mess up a suplex during their two and a half minutes as Jim wins with the power slam. Ray tried to get some promo time. There are people in the back who are scared to sign up for a match with, match with Nash, but he's not one of them. That contest takes place tonight. Charbo and Psychosis have an entertaining mini battle. The masked man gets the three count out of the guillotine leg drop. Scott Hall G's up NWO member in waiting Louis Spicoli who's in action versus Hooventude. During the match an angry Savage runs to the ring and beats up Hoovy for the DQ. He then grabs the mic and demands Luger but he does not want the help of the NWO. 
They emerge anyway and Sarge calls them a bunch of clowns. Hogan in particular makes him sick. Hulk says that to be part of the team you've got to be able to play the whole game and he's noticed that Macho Man hasn't exactly been winning many medals recently. If you don't want us to care for you, you're on your own. That's how Randy likes it, so at least for the time being, Savage will walk alone. Raven begins his match against Mortis by sitting down. He ends it, though, by standing tall following a DDT. Rath has a shot at DDP's US title. He gets whipped into Mortis on the apron, though, and the People's Champion hits the cutter for the three and the huge customary pop. Rath gives Mortis a death penalty afterwards. Mike talks to Brett. He thanks Flair for a great match and says the Nature Boy will always be the man. As regards the world title, he doesn't care if it's held by Hogan or Sting. Sooner or later, he'll be the best WCW champion ever. Booker T defends the TV title versus Perry Saturn. Hammer nails Book for the disqualification. The flock beat him down until Rick Superman Martel cleans house. Jericho is on the rampway. He loves us all and nobody wants to see Ray recover quicker than he does, but nobody seems to believe him. But Michael gets Bulldogs up now. Dave looks more than a little rusty but wins with the running power slam. Big Sexy begins his match with Trailer by dousing in coffee and hitting a low blow. He then defies orders by giving Ray a powerbomb. Nash gets led away to the back in handcuffs by security but just laughs it off. Hall taunts Larry some more and takes on Luger to see us out. Lex gets him in the rack but Savage cuts it off. He throws Hall out of the ring so he can have the total package to himself. Sting comes down from the rafters and kicks him off the top rope. He applies the deathlock on Macho as Hall and Hogan do nothing but stand and watch. Hold on, Macho Man. Cooler heads need to prevail and my friend... Yours is wound just a little too tight. Well, that's really great. Glad you care about my loss to Luger. Glad you care about it. But guess what? I know you don't. Neither do you. Neither do you. And you make me sick. Oh. Wow. Oh. For life seems to be a short-term contract. Yes, it does. Much, you got a problem, it's a family, we're all here to fix it, and the man has got something he'd like to say to you. Dying to hear it! You know, Madness, if you're part of the team, brother, you gotta realize you gotta play the whole game. Sometimes me and the big man... Sometimes me and Scott, sometimes we have a difference of opinion. But we all love each other. K-Dog, Big Norton, Buff, The Boss, Vince, we're all in this thing together. And you know, the picture that we saw the other night, when me and Big Scott, Mr. Hall, came down to the ring, was, you know, that you weren't doing so good. Dig it? The picture that we saw, Mr. Macho Man, was that you weren't winning no gold medals out there, and you were exactly leading the dance with Flexi Lexi. So the way things go, because we care about you so much, and because we love you so much, me and Mr. Hall came down with the NWO spirit at heart thinking that just our physical presence 
seeing if it rings, seeing us at ringside would be enough incentive for you to overcome Lex Luger outshining you. So that is the way it is. You were not looking so good, and what it is, is what it is. If you don't want us caring for you and leading the way for you all the way to the top, all the way to the victory, my man, you are on your own. And that's the way I want it. Three things now I got to tell you, I got to tell y'all. Number one, that match wasn't over yet. I had things under control, believe me. Oh, yeah. Number two, you guys weren't exactly unbelievably coordinated when you got there. So I don't need you in my matches anymore. And number three, and believe me, you talk about a picture of confidence. You talk about a picture of control. I'm looking at a man that looked much better when he had the gold around his waist. All right, that's enough. Come on, Randy. Come on, that's enough. Stir it up. That's enough. Hold on. Everybody in the family, you included, knows I beat Sting two times. Twice, brother. Everybody here. All these NWOites and all these other pukes out here know that I'm responsible for the whole success of wrestling. And everybody knows I should have the belt around my waist right now. And just because J.J. Dillon is playing politics, everybody knows in February I'll have the belt and Sting will be stung. And if you don't like that, Macho Man, if you don't like that, brother... I got a big problem with that triple ticket. Come on, man. Randy, don't do it. Don't do it. He's nuts. Come on, Bischoff trying to keep the peace. Bischoff actually sticking his head to the rope. We'll hit Bischoff. Yeah, why not? Maybe he don't know Savage. Savage will hit him. He went up in that ring. Oh, yeah. You got a problem, brother? You better work it out. You're part of this family. Here, you got something to say? Don't help me. I'll take care of Luger. You see if you can take care of Sting and get that gold back in the family. Final TV of the month. I think we'll keep this a bit open form in some respects. Um, you know, I kind of watched a lot of it today. There's a, a fair amount going on. This, you know, they did the thing with J.J. Dillon regarding buying the Powerbomb and Kevin Nash then just, you know, overruling that immediately and doing it anyway. Um, some interesting developments with, with the NWO stuff. Uh, Roy, before we go on to any NWO chat, anything from TV either before or uh, before the pay-per-view or on this show that you want to bring up? I mean, there's that god-awful, you know, the, the NWO, uh, sorry, the, the, the WCW Nitro Party at the, the kind of university. Hall in Chattanooga. Um, the best part of the Nitro Party, of course, is that no one was actually fucking watching it. Um, and uh, 
Also, very noteworthy for Gene Oakland channeling Scott Hall with his, uh, are you here to, are you at the Nitro party to watch WCW? And then he goes, or are you here to watch? And then he kind of let them really badly do WCW. Um, but, but anything for all of the above? I will definitely mention something else from there as well as I didn't put it in my TV review because I didn't want to subject myself to trying to put it into writing. And that was the instant immortal classic. That was the game of, oh, yes, pin the tail on the Nitro Girl, which took place (laughs) during the party, which Gene was all too keen to say, you won't be doing it on a real Nitro Girl. Although, of course, the cameras cut away very quickly afterwards. We could probably use our imaginations on that one. Uh, One more crummy thing I do want to talk about was the re-debuting of the British Bulldog, David Boy Smith. Uh, his pockets are now $150,000 lighter, so that is another $150,000 he cannot spend on promo class, because he only had about a 30-second uh, window when he was uh, challenging Steve McMichael, and he still managed to screw up the words dog, bone, and called himself, uh, and I quote, a 20-year-old veteran. So there you go. And, and Dave Boy Smith, a reminder, probably the second best promo in the Heart Foundation. Oh, yes. <laughs> there we go. Uh, Bob, same question. Open-ended thoughts, thoughts on anything from this show or anything from Nitro we haven't covered? Uh, no, not really. I mean, uh, Roy mentioned the uh, British Bulldog uh, returning to WCW, and I just simply didn't care. Um doesn't really add much to the to the program or anything like that. But I guess the only other thing was uh, I was looking things up here, and I totally didn't even realize uh, that the Outsiders were tag team champions because they certainly have not mentioned it aside from when they won the titles on the 12th Nitro. It just seems like that's uh, an afterthought these days for WCW. As are most title changes, that seems to be the model at the moment. Apparently, I think it's the cruiserweight division. Though they want to have a the idea is, and it's not necessarily actually a horrendous idea. It's just you know more indicative of lots of other things they're doing. They basically want to have a lot of quick fire cruiserweight title changes, uh, create a lot of new champions, and then give it one guy and let him run for a while as all these ex champions try and get it off him. It, it's an idea. I guess, but yeah, tag team is, is, is something. Yeah, the, 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 the Nitro party thing. I mean, it, it looked reasonably fun. Um, you know, pin, pin the tail of the Nitro girl. What was the, what was the idea? It was just, it was a, they had a, they had a sticker and then just the Nitro girl poster. And it was like, pin it wherever. And Oakland was like, well, you can't get this wrong. And then he sees to pin it on like one of her legs. Cause he's blindfolded. And Oakland's like, oh, we can't go there. And then he gets feeling you want to do. We quickly run away. And it's like, this is just weird. Um, no one watching Nitro at any point during all this. They're all stood up. There's like one TV in the corner of the room. I suppose there's like one guy who's got no friends watching it. When everyone's trying to have some fun. Um, all a bit strange. I think we'll finish the show, as I say, with the, the, the bit that we, we kind of glossed over, but I, I think probably one of the most significant TV stories of the month was probably the end of the first show, which was, uh, which was kind of this, this tease of this kind of split with the, the NWO, and that's kind of what's been, what's been running since, really. Um, uh, Rory, I've, I've broadly liked what they've done. Um, Hulk Hogan hasn't got the title. 
which is probably, you know, I, I might be giving them too much credit here, but I'm guessing the idea is Hogan without a title has kind of messed up where the NWO is as a group. Um, yeah, Randy Savage is getting a bit pissed off, which is quite nice because I've always felt Savage is a bit weird in the NWO as it is. I like the fact that the group seems to be fracturing a bit and Hogan's the guy that's trying to hold it all together because for once, as I kind of alluded to, Hogan's been on TV a lot, but it hasn't been about him. Hogan's been coming out for other people's matches, which is significant. Um, and Rory, I, I already feel like in the first four weeks of 1998, they've done more NWO story on development than they have in the whole of 1997. And I quite like it, broadly speaking. I am enjoying seeing the NWO on my television screen. September, October last year, I'd all but had enough of it. Where, as I said last month, in my wildest dreams, I hoped that Starcade 97 would be the day where WCW run roughshod over the NWO and completely end the group. Now, in reality, that was never going to happen. Of course, it wasn't. But they're really actually telling a story with the NWO now, and Hogan losing the title has been the catalyst for it. And you could say that this whole part of the storyline has almost happened six months too late, maybe even more than that. One thing I really did like on one of the Nitros, or it might have been the Thunder, actually, where they showed the brief bit of dissension between Nash and Hogan from April last year. Now, I, I appreciate attention to detail like that. Although it did, of course, betray the fact that they've now spent nine months with the NWO being all buddy-buddy and destroying everybody every week, but that's by the by. And yeah, Bobby, bring up a great point there about Savage. He's never really fit in the NWO, so much so that when we were doing our WCW review of the year last month, you, I, and Dan forgot it even joined them, which I think is a rather important point. Savage comes across... It did happen in the seventh, second week of the year, so... Yeah, did, but yes, did, you are did. correct, yes. It did, it did. He's never, really, he's never really felt like he's been part of them. He's been doing heelish stuff. He's mainly been, mainly been off feuding with DDP. He is the kind of character who I can see snapping with the NWO, the sort of person who I can very much buy taunting Hogan for losing the world title and things like that, like they did on the last Nitro. Is Savage the right name, the right person to break off from the NWO at this point? And will he just become another giant who left, looked as though they were going to do something really with him and just sort of meandered him in the mid-card where he still is now? I don't know. I think they need to break off more people than Savage if that's where they're going. But it is genuinely interesting. It gives the NWO a real purpose. And we have now finally moved into chapter two of their story. It's just taken us too long to get there. But we're there now, so let's keep it going. Bob? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm 50-50 on it. Uh, to me, the NWO is kind of getting played out as we enter 98. I, I do I do like the, the friction. I like that uh, Scott Hall and, and Savage seem to be vying for the world title that Hogan doesn't have anymore, and Hogan doesn't really appreciate that. So that can add a layer uh, for the group and maybe potentially a new leader. Um, could even lead to a Hogan face turn. Who knows? Um, but, I mean, it's just uh, there are not so much on the television that uh, I kind of just roll my eyes uh, more times than not. But um, it's certainly a, a better direction than uh, – than what they would do in 97 with Hogan just cutting promos and not really having much depth to it. Yeah, uh, it feels like direction. It feels like purpose. It it feels like they're going somewhere. I suspect they don't actually have a plan here. I suspect we're giving them uh, 
far more credit than it's worth, but you know, you, you've got to give them something. I just, it just feels fresh. Um, you know, and again, whether they'll pay this off or not, I don't know. Whether there's just going to be 12 months of turmoil and tension that never goes anywhere is probably the most likely outcome, actually. Um, but I like what they've done. I like the angle on the end of the first show of the month with Savage, you know, um, striking out. I like the fact that it seems to be focused around three or four core guys, Sash, Hogan, Hall, and Nash, predominantly. Did I say Sash? Savage, Hogan, Hall, and Nash, if I did. Um, those four guys, Bischoff's trying to hold it together. And as I say, I like the fact that it's it's coincided with Hogan losing the title. It's Hogan recognising that without the NWO, he cannot beat Sting or hold on to the title, which is a very good plot point. So mm. they haven't really surfaced. And again, I may be giving them more credit than it's worth, but I'll... It's there, if nothing else. It, if they're not doing it, someone should certainly be saying it. Um, and yeah, it does also mean the end of you doing something that isn't just really idiotically boring. It does mean that, you know, the end of can do something weird. It means that Sting can, can take advantage a bit more. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know where I want it to go. I think they're, they're making too much money with the NWO to the point where you could seriously suggest that breaking up the group with a good idea would be a very bad idea. Um, but again, I come back to what I've said before. Making this group bigger does not make it better. In fact, I think it waters it down. I, I'd be inclined to cut some numbers in some way, shape or form, shake things up. I'd also be inclined to boot one of the big names out of the group. Um, to me, Scott Hall makes the most sense. It may well be Randy Savage. I think those would be the two guys that I'd be inclined to do. I mean, who knows what's going to happen with Hulk Hogan. I think he's signed a contract, or I think he's about to. Um, but in theory, they're still having to wait until that all shakes itself out before they can do anything with it. Um, you know, Kevin Nash, I think, is, is, is having far too much fun as a heel to turn him. Um, but yeah, like, if you broke off Hall, you could... You know, if he wanted to give Hogan the title back, and I guess we'll have that discussion next month. You want to give Hogan the title back? I, I think the the most logical step going forward into the next few months, if Hogan wins the title next month, there's no guarantee that he does. But I, I, I suspect WCW are far happy with the prospect of laying out uh, laying out a, a program for uh, for Hogan. Uh, against guys challenging him, they are for Sting. So we need to see what they do with that. But I think Hogan wins the title. I think someone like Scott Hall, Hall will be a much more refreshing opponent than say doing Hogan and Savage again. Let's say that. Um, I think that's uh, that's probably the uh, a good thing to say too. But yeah, it just feels different. As I say, after twelve months of nothing, I feel like we've got something. Um, let's see if they can add any chapters to it this time. I guess the good point and, uh, and probably a good place to finish. Uh, Rory McNamara, Rory, thank you very much. Thank you guys. It was actually meant to be a Ric Flair impression. That's how much I've botched that one. Thought Which one was there. that? Uh, when oh, I the... did my the Canadian accent, it was meant to be a Ric Flair impression. Right. Um, now challenging Bret Hart for the worst, uh, Ric Flair impression of January 1998. Yes, it may be well. Uh, Rory, uh, remind people where they can find you on Twitter. Yes, uh, bombard me with hate for that at RawsDM. That's R-O-R-S-D-M. Bob Colling. Bob, thank you very much for joining us on this show. Uh, thank you for having me. I had a, a really good time uh, reminiscing about WCW in January 98 with you guys. 
Yes, um, you know, you, you, I hope it won't uh, come through in the edit, but Rory and uh, Bob have been quite happily sitting along while I've been having all, all nu- numerous amounts of technical issues my side as uh, my phone and my computer have been connecting in various directions. Uh, Bob, I think you've got lots to promote, so promote anything and everything that you'd like to. Uh, yeah, I have a, a wrestling website where I do reviews and, and wrestling columns uh, varying in years and promotions. It's wrestlingrecaps.com. There's literally thousands and hundreds of different kinds of reviews and columns. Uh, I have a lot of spare time in my hands. So if anybody's interested in old school reviews and current day ones, you can go ahead to wrestlingrecaps.com and check it out. And you're on Twitter? Uh, I can be contacted on uh, Yo Bobby Boy 89 I've had it for seven years and never bothered to change it. Can you spell that out? Because that was just a noise to me. Okay, uh, yeah, Yo Bobby Boy 89 So it's just Y-O and then B-O-B-B-Y. B-O-Y and then 89. Okay, it's exactly as I thought it would be. I probably should know that. I can't see you by it, but you know, yeah, I, I just fig- I just figured I'd check. Uh, yes, uh, reminder first that we're on Patreon for five bucks a month where possible, and I will make an effort a bit more this year to try and actually do it. Uh, the last few months of last year, there was, there was I think, two or three occasions in the, in the final five months of last year where I was literally editing every single show one after another at the end of the month. And that is not that fun. That is like... 10 hours work off the reel so uh, for, for my own sanity i should probably uh space these out a bit more and give the, those people that, that that choose to donate a little bit of their uh hard-earned hard-earned cash to me every month a little bit of incentive to do so so if you'd like to say thank you and, and uh, donate five bucks a month uh, on patreon you can just have patreon.com forward slash wrestling 20 rs links in the podcast description and on our website to the bottom this month volume number one takes the wwf looking at the royal rumble and volume number three to ecw looking at house party including what i think is actually the first time i've seen anyone i say first time the first time timeline i've ever seen anyone get thrown off the ladder sandman of all people and go vaulting through two tables on the outside which is a a spot that we're now very very used to um and yeah that'll do that you can find everything on the website wrestling20rs.com i should hopefully be soon caught up on all the stuff i'm backed up on and lots of things have written they're just not online so i should probably start publishing some things um and yeah wrestling20rs on twitter and that'll do that i've been bob bamba this has been volume number two of the january 1998 edition of the wrestling 20 years ago podcast and until next time goodbye <laughs>